Golight presents the Talking Bollocks Podcast. The hip knocker. Here we go, episode 44, Talking Bollocks. It's me, COB. It's me, Teddy Flower. And today we're joined by... Am I supposed to say who I am? Well, yeah. it, it would help oh, us. I, I had no idea that this was expected. Roddy Doyle. Roddy Doyle, here to, brought to you today by Go Loud. Go Loud is the home of Irish podcasts. So we'll kick this off. We were just talking about how you spell bollocks. Well, I think you've made two major mistakes there, lads. Talking, for a start... T-A-L-K-I-N apostrophe. Yeah, drop the yeah. G. Right. And bollocks, I think the way it's presented there, I would go, o- uh, you know, B-O-L-L-O-C-K-S. Right. Although, you know, I've no objection to the way it is there, but, you know, it depends on, you know, if you were saying that's a load of bollocks, it's I-X. But actually, it wouldn't, I-X wouldn't look good on that screen. Yeah, yeah, right there. Right. Yeah. Should have just given it So I think you're grand, but I do find the talking thing a bit formal. You should get rid of the G and get in a, an apostrophe. Can we change that on? Well, do you know what? Not necessarily immediately. <laughs> I'm quite happy to continue yeah. on, well, the, on the promise that you'll do it during the week. You'll get that short. <laughs> write, yeah, I'll tell you what you could do. Write it out a hundred times. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Attention. If yeah. there's anyone to ever come in and critique it, Roddy, I'm glad it was you. And not Well, so- I wasn't expecting it. It's, grand. it's brought out uh, the temptation to get out a red biro and go over and correct yeah. It's <laughs> nearly overwhelming. So, uh, yeah, no, happy to be a f- podcast. Seems fine to me. Right, yeah, that's Grant. Yeah. And then Titans and Calvin at the end. How's that? Yeah, yeah, Grant. And I like, even though it's not grammatically, I suppose, I like that little and thing. I'm not sure what you call that. Ampersand. Is that ampersand? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Every day's a skill day oh, now. The calm, yeah. I think they look great sometimes, you know, and I think they look good there between the two years. And I think you're wise as well. Sometimes it's the rhythm. Terence and Calvin has a little bit more going for it than Calvin and Terrace somehow. Terence somehow. It's more musical. Yeah. It's a fair oh. play to you. Yeah, well and what about the Dublin skyline? I think that really fits well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No you... problem there. <laughs> yeah, and I like the mix of the old and the, modern, the, the modernity, yeah. Yeah. I think... Poor old Jim Larkin there with the spike sticking out at the back of it. It's like a big tail or something. So I think. Do you know what that is, Roddy? That's yeah. we're just trying to epitomise what happened. So Jim Larkin's there, all fighting for workers' rights on the end of O'Connell Street. But then you look around them, and it's just capitalism. There's McDonald's, Burger King, Starbucks everywhere. So yeah. that's basically a fuck you to Jim Larkin. Ah, the big finger. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. yeah. It's a disaster, O'Connell Street, isn't, isn't it? it? It's horrible. <laughs> isn't it? And then, Should be a big European boulevard. You get in yeah. Paris or Berlin and it's just, that's awful. It's really awful. Right. So, okay. are, yeah. we, are we done? Yeah. <laughs> we spent the first 20 minutes just critiquing yeah. the Talking Bollocks logo no, I wasn't and expecting this O'Connell Street. I wasn't yeah. expecting And while Calvin was away, it makes you always got a tattoo on the back of my leg. Yeah. Rich, got, yeah. The whole logo, come here, I'll give you a gander. Look. The whole thing. Yeah, on the back of me leg there. What do you think oh, of that? Oh, right. That's, that's... Uh, Put it up on the chair there, so the camera can see. Yeah. Did that hurt? Yeah, it's stung. Yeah, it was a killer, yeah? Yeah. You can and much barely you, see it there, yeah. Yeah, that's very good. How, how much, much did it cost him? Back then? Uh, oh, no comments. <laughs> 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 a few quid, yeah? No, but uh, yeah, that got 
stuck on the back of my leg, Calvin left me alone for too long. We say Calvin's like me SNA. Yeah. You can't really be trusted on my own. Why the back of your leg? Didn't really think it through. I only got told the night before. He was like, come over and I'll do a tattoo for you. So I went over the next day with no intentions, no plans. And I just said, fuck around the back of did you hesitate before you said, yeah? No. That's the issue. That's his problem, Roddy. He doesn't really think things through. He yeah. just, he's spontaneous. And I wonder what sort of stage it'll be in in about 20 years. <laughs> well, listen, hopefully the podcast keeps going. Cause, yeah. Uh, yeah. I have a funny story. So uh, I went on this thing. Uh, it's called a, a mystery tour in college. So basically what happened was you, you paid them X amount. Say it was, I don't know, the fee was uh, 150 quid and you sent them your passport. And the lads went and booked a trip abroad for 50 people out of college. So uh, 50 of us rock up to the airport, not knowing where we're going. And then they hand you the boarding pass. So turns out we went to Brussels in Belgium. So we went over there for three days. Mad trip. Like, really, really mad trip. I'll save the stories for another podcast. But on the last day, just before we had to head for the airport, one of the lads went in and he got the college logo tattooed on his arse. So he, we nearly missed the bus to the airport because he was getting that on his arse. And then uh, two weeks later, he dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> so I just hope now we can keep this podcast going and that's not a bad omen that he's had to get on his legs what oh, college was it uh, uh, well the National College of Ireland NCI so, did you uh, get the whole thing National College of Ireland the NCI logo big lad yeah well a big big arse yeah. like Nicki Minaj that yeah. fella. so we end up dropping out and I was just like would you not just like try and just finish out the year and he's like nah, that's no that's it yeah, so there we go. Yeah, and just a quick shout out to Kenneth Lackham for showing that tattoo for me. Yeah, so if you want, we can get you a Talking Mollocks tattoo if you want. No, I'm grand, thanks. No, all right, sounds. Have you got any tattoos? I don't. Yeah, I had a feeling. She looked at me a bit funny when I showed you mine. <laughs> no, no, I mean, uh, I know they are, you know, the thing. Nobody's complete without at least seven of them. You know, <laughs> yeah, I heard that, uh, what would you say, not contagious but when you get one you want more yeah no, I, addictive I get a little bit of the itch yeah so you know in the sports people who have more time on their hands than most of us who can't go through an afternoon without adding to what they and more have. money than most of us as well that's yeah, the thing that covered in tattoos but anyways we're gonna have to move on right <laughs> to our zingers from the last three weeks have you listened to an episode Do you know where the zinger is oh uh, yeah you asked me a question is it yeah, or, yeah. it's an either or yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. right so we've about because I was, yeah. Can you no? We can't even zoom in. Can we? There we are. That is like a them. It's like a twelve-fold accumulator. It's like you had to bet you shopping to see how it does. Because right. I was away, Ruddy, we've accumulated loads of them, so we have to go through them all now. And you're asking me the them all? We're gonna have to. It's just a quick fire. All right, quick fire. Yeah. Okay. Barbecue or buffalo wings? You're gonna have to say that again. Barbecue or buffalo <laughs> wings? Oh, I couldn't give a shit. You had barbecue be- then. But that's childish, Roddy. I've nothing to say. <laughs> no comment. Uh, it's not an interrogation. You're not shitting <laughs> in the bride well now, Roddy. I know, yeah. No, nothing really to say. <laughs> Buffalo wings. No. No, haven't I? I don't have much shit of an opinion on that at all. All right. right I take, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd happily eat either, but... Yeah, you're yeah, not t- fussy. Take what you're I wouldn't I'll let somebody else make my mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah What's the percentages on it? 69% yet buffalo, 31% yet barbecue. Do you call it a belch or a boop? Belch. Yeah. Belch, yeah. Belch, 57%, Bob, 43%. This is the most childish one we've had in the last three weeks. John McGuckin, you so want to grow up. We had uh, Joe on. Joe does a podcast here as well called Stolly. So we had him on as a guest and we asked him, had he got any singers for us? And he says, Nappy or diaper. Nappy or diaper. As if people in Ireland call it a diaper. Oh, it's an nappy. Yeah, but like I don't know anybody on this island no, that calls it a, a diaper. No. 
Og tager noget word, I kan med ud af. This is gonna play over 99 <laughs> 99% It's a better word. Yeah, that's, that's kind of, it's a warm, funny, yeah. Yeah. affectionate word. The van, my book and film. The Where they nappy. deep fry and happy. Yeah, you don't deep di- diaper. It's not as funny. And when your man comes up to the, to the uh, when he finds that his cod is actually a nappy, and he says, it's a nappy. Yeah. I think it would still be funny if he said it's a diaper, but it's not remotely as funny. No, it's a bit nappy dampened. It has yeah. to be a nappy. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I think, you know what, Joe, we love you in all, but that was shy. Melvin, <laughs> yeah. on, 99% to 1%, yeah? Uh, now, what, what was that question? I think you put the question blank. He said, would you prefer Nutella or chocolate spread? And you said, do you call it Nutella or chocolate spread? No, he said, do you call it Nutella or chocolate spread? Yeah. I could be wrong. Do you call it Nutella or chocolate spread? It depends if it is Nutella or chocolate Do you know the difference what between the, the two? Thing? I don't know. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be indulging in either of them, to be honest with you. It, the healthy well, fella? There would have been a time when there'd be a, uh, is it a jar of it, is it? In yeah, yeah, yeah. And as far as I remember, it was always Nutella. Yeah, yeah, but I, some people were texting us saying that chocolate spread is just like normal melted chocolate and then Nutella is hazelnut. hazelnut. I thought they were all hazelnut. I didn't know. I don't know why you're looking at me. It's another, <laughs> go back to Buffalo Wings. Yeah, well, <laughs> someone, someone texted us and said their child calls it black jam. And I think that's a great name. That is a great name. Yeah, Can I get a black jam sandwich, please? That's lovely. You can take that one home. Can I have it? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Open the press. There's no black jam. 67% said no. Tell her 33% said chocolate spread. When you give it to him, lift, your mate a lift over the wall, what you call that? What you call it back in your day? So long since I did that. You're only a pup. Christ, I can't remember. Uh, I know it exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. So the options were a boost or a bunty. Do you ever call it either of them? I don't think either, but probably boost would have be, been. Yeah, yeah. boost for me as well. Oh, I wish I could remember now. That oh, really... was it? No, I said, I said bunty, a boost is when you lift them up behind. Yeah. No, don't you see? I haven't, you know. <laughs> you haven't been acting the ball are long, long over. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Uh, not even a distant memory, to be honest. <laughs> Another lifetime. Yeah. Um, 79% said a boost, 21% said a bunty. Fuck me, we're only half by two, right? What, how do I work this one? Lep or scale? When yeah. you're going to jump over a wall, do you say you leapt it or you scaled it? A wall? Yeah. yeah. Leapt it? Yeah. No, would I say that? I leapt leapt the, wall. the wall or scaled the wall? Scaled sounds more formal, doesn't it? It's yeah. more accurate, but... We're not uh, formal people, though. Again, I'm trying to remember the last time I... Oh, actually, now that I think of it, last Thursday I climbed the wall. It wasn't much of a wall, but I think I just climbed the wall, and I was actually quite relieved I managed to get over the... Uh, Why were you climbing the wall last Thursday? Shortcut. <laughs> <laughs> just happened to take the shortcut away from the police. Thing. I wasn't trying to get away from it. <laughs> yeah. But it was just thinking, made was way more sense. Yeah, it, just went, it, it made way more sense to going around the long <laughs> way. It was fr- actually Friday night, yeah. And you were scaling the wall? I, it was, uh, by my standards, yeah, at my age, yeah, I was really what yeah, quite that? relieved I got over it, yeah, but, but if you looked at it, you'd be howling with laughter. It was a pat. <laughs> 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 but <laughs> left the wall is 20%, scale is 80%. Uh, this is the one. Subtitles are dubbed, do you prefer show? When we were uh, out Subtitles every time. Yeah, yeah when we were out so I watched Squid Games recently and I yeah. watched it dubbed. 
I'm not even calm more than happy with me about no. it. No. Now I'd usually say subtitles, but I, I just put it on and it was just in dubbed and it was This is what I was saying, I think it defaults to dubbed. You said it was American accents. That must get in the way, really, when you see all these Korean characters with American accents. Oh. Maybe you should watch an American film when all the characters have uh, Korean, Korean accents. accents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fairness, if it's an option, if it's possible, if you go through, if you scroll through all the options. I think they did a well for some hell like an early matched no, what you were saying it, just, it takes I the focus away I met a German actor who was known as The Voice and he was the dubbed voice for every oh. nearly every Hollywood male lead you could think of and he told me that at one point his agent asked for too much money for I think it was a Clint Eastwood role and they turned it down and gave the job to another actor and the German audiences just wouldn't accept it they, <laughs> Weren't See, having it. They're too efficient. Yeah. That's what it is with Germans. No, it was just that they were used to the sound of his voice representing Clint yeah. Eastwood. And I think everybody else at that time. So uh, that was his living. Yeah, he did voice the voices. That's mad because a couple of we weeks ago we were talking about it. We had this conversation. Who does like, Morgan Freeman in Germany? Yeah. And does it make sense? Because Morgan Freeman has such a distinctive voice. Yes. Does someone really distinctive have to do his voice for every film? Well, that's what I'm saying, that the German audiences were insisting that they get... I can't remember his name now, but this lad had to be, well, as I say, mm. Clint is... He may well be Morgan Freeman as well, yeah. I don't know. German fella's name is probably Hans Vocal or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, sounds fairly German. Doesn't it? I'm, uh, yeah, no, it was about 20 years ago when I met him. So I can't remember his name, unfortunately. Really nice fella. Though. But really this nice led us on to another story that we went and talked about outside, <clears throat> because we were saying, did they have to dub your films... In America then, because how hard they'd find it to understand. And you said there was a rumour going around. When the commitments came out, yeah, part of the myth was that people going into the commitments in America were given a little booklet, a glossary with all the slang in it, so they could look it up. And that story makes no sense whatsoever, because um, if you get your little glossary, you go into the cinema, sit down, the lights go down, you wouldn't be able to read. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes no sense. So it's just... And it, people have said it to me over the years, and... Uh, no, so there were no, there was no dubbing or subtitling at all. But uh, yeah, like so, you'd need a miner's helmet or a torch to read the glossary. Yeah, but, headlamp. Yeah. But add, you can see why people myths. would struggle yeah. though with slang. You know, it's people on the shelf show like you can't understand me, bloody. You're one of me own. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we're all struggling here. But uh, dubbed thirty-two percent, subtitled sixty-eight percent. People who uh, watch a dub just can't read. I think we've established that. Yeah, and that's great. You know, I think um, I remember somebody talking to me about audiobooks, and I was on the verge of saying, "No, audiobooks are rubbish." And she said, "Because I can't read, and it's really brilliant to be able to listen to the books." So that shut me up, yeah. quite <laughs> rightly. So yeah, I can see why a lot of people would like, but go for the dubbed option. But if it's just idleness, if it's laziness. It was laziness from me. Hundred percent, yeah, definitely, so. definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Get into the corner there instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, next one, do you call it a quilt or a duvet? Duvet. Yeah, yes. of course. Duvet, ninety-one percent. The quilt, nine percent. Can't believe you had to do that. Why that? That didn't show many singles. Ready, was struggling. Yeah. Look. S sorry about this. Bear with us. Bear with us. We're at the end. Are there many left? Two more left here. Uh, would you rather go 100 years in the future or 100 years in the past? You see, this is a good one because it's filter thought, you know what I mean? 100 years, what would that be? Uh, 1921, you're talking. 21. where? Do I have to be here? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
War of Independence. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I go 100, 100, uh, 100 years in the past. War Do you know, you're not uh, thinking about like what could that be in the future? Couldn't give a shite. <laughs> no interest in it. Well, well, you know, yeah, as long as I can put on the gas fire in the morning, <laughs> I don't care what the future's like. Really. Well, the way no things are going, there probably won't be gas in 100 years. So yeah, I know that. You so, never know. And I'm not, you know. No, I think maybe if you'd got me when I was younger, I would have said, oh, the future. Yeah. But I suppose because I don't have all that much of a future left myself, you never I think know. I'd rather go backwards. Touch so, wood. yeah, I think given it's the War of Independence, being in Dublin during the War of Independence, the run up to the treaty, and uh, I think it could have been really interesting. Yeah. Mm. And you'd hear because there wouldn't have been much traffic. You'd hear yeah. all the gunshots. Yeah. There would be Flying columns going around. Yeah. Push bikes doing hits. And pretty scary when you're coming up to curfew and you're not home yet. Yeah. And the black and tans are going to come around the corner. Yeah. And I'm changing my mind. Can we go with it? Yeah, 100 years <laughs> in the future, yeah. yeah. I was thinking, yeah, this doesn't yeah, yeah. all that great. Right? It'd be great you go 100 years into the future. And the first thing you see is the black and tans. Yeah. <laughs> back. They'll call them the back and tans. Yeah. <laughs> right. 57% of people would rather go into the future, 43% for the past. Be interested uh, to get a breakdown of age. Yeah, it would be. Go back that I suggest you get a breakdown of the age group. Who do younger people tend to go go into the future? future, Do the older ones? I think we'd have more of a younger crowd on Instagram. Anyways, yeah. but I'd like to actually, we have to, they can get the numbers. Alan, if you can pull the numbers up during the episode, do that for us of what age groups are listening and what percentage of stuff like that. We actually that, have a wide, wide uh, audience because I had the numbers before and there was people in the 65 uh, plus age bracket. Sure, I know that from walking down the road, people putting yeah. you like, that's Paris? mad. Yes, we have a wide range of listeners. And then this is the last one, Roddy. Sorry, this is the this. most important one. Right up. Yeah, I already know his answer to this one. No, this isn't the most important one, actually. I'm going to ask you the most important one. It's not in the sheet. Yeah, <laughs> right, you ready for this, Ronnie? He's laughing with his nerves. I'm slightly terrified. Yeah, you should be. Do you piss in the show already? No. I think you're a lawyer. Sure I don't care sh- what you think. I, don't. <laughs> I, you, I own the shower. Yeah. <laughs> Do you really not? No. What happens when the water hits you and you need to have a slash? Well, it hasn't arisen really, lads. You know, no. It doesn't happen to you. There's a... I don't know if I'm giving too much away about me personally. There's a toilet in the house and there's a shower. So oh, I know, but sometimes sh- you don't need to go and then you're in the shower and you're like, I need to go, but I don't want to go out. How long would you be in the shower for? Well, Ten minutes. No. no. Why would I, you know, I'm not washing my hair or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's a you're saving more no time. Idea what <laughs> Neither does Alan Brennan. So no, the honest answer, and it is the honest answer, I'm not being evasive or I'm not yeah. avoiding... I wasn't anticipating the question, but no, <laughs> no. The first I'll, time you were ever asked that one? I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No better place than Again, talking I bollocks. couldn't, you know, if somebody came up and said, I asked you that question in 1963. Yeah. <laughs> Mind you, nobody had a shower in 1963, so... Um, a little budgie bath. Bath once a week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the real most important one at the end of this, should we keep down zingers ready? Yeah or no? <sighs> If you had me on every week, no. <laughs> but yes, I'm not can. on every week, so, yeah. Wait yeah. a moment, we only did one or two a week. That's just an accumulation of the last three Why episodes. did you inflict them all on me? Because you Oh, just... it's because they come in from the audience, do they? Yeah. Like, ah, yeah, gotcha now. Yeah, so, yeah, so we have to so wait next for the week, results. Next week, yeah. we'll probably only have one or two. Right. But 
<laughs> well, you probably have some slack jawed gobshite who would only be capable of answering one or two. Anyway. <laughs> well, look, at, I know next week's guest is, so you want to be careful what you're saying. <laughs> I'll tell you after this. But uh, 95% said we should keep doing them, 5% said we should. I don't want to get in the way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I have a good one for this week's Right, one, so now I'm moving into this week's English <laughs> and I'm going to try and hit that camera again. Ah, but, uh, so I'm only back off my holidays, right? Uh, I was in Mexico for two weeks. And before I went, I had this naivety about me that anywhere you travel, someone speaks English. So there's not really that much pressure on you to learn a second language. Mm. But then I went to Mexico and nobody speaks English in Mexico. They all speak Spanish and like they're determined to get the point across to you. And I remember years ago, you'd meet a foreign person on the street and you'd be explaining rules to them like or directions even. And you're like, you go down here and go left, left. And they'd be like, nodding the head was still puzzled that's how I was in Mexico people speak to me in Spanish I was like mm. I don't speak Spanish and I'm still like trying to get the message across so I was saying to myself kicking myself for not learning another language growing up you know like we don't I don't French in school I know a bit of broken the Jean fella yeah basically <laughs> yeah so uh, and then where European language they're all derived from Latin anyway so yeah. the grammar and the vocabulary is a bit similar so I was able to pick up certain things what they were yeah. saying in Spanish but Barely. So my zinger for this week is, would you rather be able to speak every language on earth or speak to animals? Now that's a zinger. I already speak to animals. They rarely answer back. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Roddy, African grey. I don't know. I don't think I'd like to speak to animals. I prefer to use my imagination. Yeah. So, yeah, speaking every language in the world. As in, you go to Brazil, you can speak fluent Portuguese, you go to the middle of the Amazon, whatever language yeah, well, you're speaking. Yeah, I was reading a book. I can't remember who's it, who is it by, but in the introduction, she said she was fluent in eight languages. Yeah. That would do me. That would be brilliant, wouldn't it? To be able to swerve from one language to the other. Yeah, but the thing about it is, no matter who you meet, whatever language you're speaking, you can automatically communicate with them. Yeah, but I reckon if you had eight languages, you'd probably have a good stab at the others because we borrow from languages. Yeah, no, definitely, know. yeah. And Yeah, and, and you know, when you're, when you're listening, if you're watching something from Denmark or Germany or whatever, you can hear, like, about half the words seem vaguely familiar. But I think because Dutch and German the same place, Dutch and German so. are the same. I don't yeah, know. I yeah. can't differentiate between them. So I reckon if them. you had German, you'd probably have a good stab at the languages around Germany. Yeah. And if you had French, you can have a good stab at And if you had Spanish, Portuguese. So you're going with the language of speaking to animals? Yeah, because in my head, I already speak to the animals in a yeah. way. You know, when the children's books I've written have talking dogs and seagulls yeah. and that sort of thing. And I, I suspect talk, I, the opportunity to talk to a seagull, I'm changing my mind now. I don't know. I think seagulls are great, and I'd love to have a good chat. With I think they're cunts. <laughs> Why? They're just noisy bastards, and there's gangs in them, and they're, they're getting very rough. Did you ever see the humans out there? Oh yeah, I know. But the I seagulls could, I could, are worse. They walk around with yeah. Stanley blades yeah. and all. Now, seagulls yeah. are out there snatching phones and all. <laughs> That's because. <laughs> Do you ever have a bag of chips and hope? Two hundred years ago, we wouldn't have seen a seagull because they'd have been out in the sea. But now we took away their fish. Then they had the dumps, right? Mm. So they, when I was a kid. You know the Alfie Byrne Road yeah, down no, there well. at Fairview and the Causeway Road across to Dollymount? Yeah. They were built on top of ballast, rubbish. Yeah. And so the city, uh, all the city's rubbish was dumped there for a long, long time. And there were thousands of seagulls in the air, thousands of them in the air. It was an amazing sight. And that doesn't happen anymore because the, we got the wheelie bins with the lids on them, you know. Mm. So they've got less and less to eat. They've, they've changed the way they migrate they are now urban birds. They they nest on the roofs of houses to survive. Yeah. I know and the seagulls at me. They're 
getting the happy payment and all the three bedroom <laughs> gas and everything. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a big, I'm actually a big defender of the seagulls. And yeah. I think a lot of the hostility towards seagulls is actually, you know, I was out in Hout trying to take a photograph. There were four bird, four seagulls in a row on a wall. And I was trying to get a photograph of them. And this woman, I swear to God, she was on a bench sitting there and she said, you're only encouraging them. <laughs> In my mind, she's not talking about seagulls. That's almost racist, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Or she could be talking about kids. And then you hear the stuff. I heard a counsellor from Galway saying they're robbing handbags and phones. Yeah. And if you, oh, but if you hadn't been listening to the very beginning, if you hadn't known he was talking about seagulls, he could have been talking about animals. Yeah. Right. He could have been talking about humans. And I think a lot of the hostility directed towards seagulls is actually thinly veiled hostility towards different types of people. But. I read a book about seagulls and there was a brilliant study done when they were able to, seagulls, uh, there were dumps in Essex for London's rubbish. Late afternoon, all the rubbish lorries would come come from London and the seagulls would convene thousands and thousands of them over the air and they descend on the rubbish then. And they never turned up on Sundays. Are you joking (laughs) me? No. It wasn't that they'd come and they'd see there was nothing doing. They never bothered. They knew it was Sunday. So my mind is blown. Yeah. Bank holidays confused them altogether because they'd turn up on the Monday, but it was a bank holiday. There'd be no rubbish. And they were confused and kind of angry in the air. But they didn't even (laughs) bother turning up. So there's something going on there. And they also, they live for 30 years and more. You can't be killing. Oh, he's saying that. Oh, he's saying yeah, that. You can't before. be culling animals that live for 30 yeah. years. So they remember the 90s and I all. know, the good Christian <laughs> seagulls, they don't work on Sundays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and presumably the Muslim seagulls don't work on Fridays. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm baffled with the fascination yeah, oh, with it, seagulls. It, it was a brilliant book. Brilliant, brilliant book. But I love, I love the seagulls and I love... Um, just looking at them, you know, when I'm, when I'm in town and I go up to Capel Street Bridge or something, because there's always a good gang of seagulls there mm. and there's something about them. It's easy to imagine them having conversations. Yeah, the and they've kind of taken over Stephen's <laughs> Green as well. Yeah. yeah. I peed the ducks in Stephen's Green. They don't got to look in. Yeah, well. So anyways, you change your answer <laughs> now. So you're saying you'd rather speak to the animals. Because of seagulls. I would like to speak German to the seagulls. There's a good shout. Right. Now. <sighs> yeah. That was a good hands and I enjoyed that. We enjoyed that. That was, that. Yeah. that was a bit of crack. That was a bit of crack. I'm glad I talked to animals because I don't need to speak another language. I'm never leaving Dublin, Seven or okay. Dublin 1. You're on the south side now. You're in Dublin 2 at yeah. the moment. Right. I'm never leaving Dublin. All right. So I'm fresh. Right. Have you literally never been out of Dublin? I have been out a few times. A couple of bad experiences and here and there and... I'm just not, I just love Ireland. I just don't want to leave yeah. Ireland. I got a little bit of stick on this podcast a few weeks ago because I said, would you prefer to never go away again on a holiday or would you prefer to never use social media again? You have to pick one. Yeah. And I picked never going on a holiday again because I'm just not that fascinated with going oh. anywhere. The only reason why I would go away would be to go over to a Liverpool match, which I am going to be doing soon. I think. You, you know, have you never been thing. to a Liverpool never match? Never been to a match. I, I just have a good classic supporter. <laughs> and you, would you go to a match here? No, yeah, look, I would go to match here. I just, I don't really, I don't watch the League of Ireland. And I, I'm not a fan of the League of Ireland. Right. I'd love to be. I'm yeah. not. It's too late to jump on board. The difference between going to a match and watching it on the telly is Big so, yeah. it's just amazing. Yeah. So good. Yeah, it's well worth, you know, what would you say, reining in your anxiety and going to it. Yeah, Anfield. so I'm, I'm going to do that for, for the match. And because England's very like Ireland, isn't it? But they see like Liverpool going. is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't be too far from home if you're in Liverpool. You're a big Chelsea fan. I am. 
Sorry to hear. And I'm a Bowles fan as well. Look at it. Oh, I am. I am a big Bowles fan. Yeah. Even more sorry to hear. Love that. The Georgie Kelly finish. Yeah. I'm Brennan for you. I had a head of hair until they signed him last year. I'm not ashamed at all. And I'm working on my Tony Gall accent. But yeah, I'm chosen speaking to animals. Yeah. I think I'd pick the languages. Fuck animals. Yeah, bro. Do you ever tell you, when I tell a dog to get into bed, it gets into bed. It knows what I'm saying anyway. So. <laughs> you ever probably you get, a lip, you get lip off the dog if yeah. it knew that you understood. Yeah. yeah but what if the dog could speak back? Just shut your mouth to be a bit of crack. Get it? into bed. What are you shouting for? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I wouldn't be into that. No, I'd rather put... I'd pick the language uh, over the, the animals. The dog would be phoning dog line as well. Yeah. No. <laughs> We'd have a dog sitting there. Pup line. Pup line. <laughs> so what's it like living with Calvin? Woof. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's your singer yeah right I have a singer go on right would you rather morning sex or sex in the uh, or in the night up. that's boys. moving on yeah. good singer no no that's not, a bad one moving not on not like that boys we're not having that one I can't believe I had to spend it. the last day I didn't sing was Roddy <laughs> yeah, Doyle yeah, I brought down the tone we were talking about seagulls and animals and talking and, and, and then I just have to switch the mood up yeah, like that yeah. I prefer sex in the, in the night time anyways that's just the fact that you've never been to a Liverpool match yeah, yeah, yeah it is yeah, yeah, just throw that one uh, in yeah. there take the distraction yeah, yeah, away yeah. are we not going with that one no right Roddy's not answering that what are you going with I just say the night the night time same as well morning sex Stort morning right. breath and all, but yeah, Melvin, I'm ready. No answer, no, no sound ready. Plead the fifth, <laughs> yeah, no comments, right. right? Calvin, um, so something I want to talk about, right? Um, it's been, I don't know, it's like a weekly occurrence at this stage. Uh, the planning permission that's been approved for the cobblestone pub in Smithfield, Merchant's Arch on the keys, and even the goes far back as Moshri as well. Mm. Uh, where the 1916 leaders hid, they want to extend the old through that, demolish that building, put in a hotel on top of the, the marble art or the merchant's arch, and put a hotel on top of the cobblestone pub as well. Yeah. So this seems to be constantly every week. There's a new hotel. There's a new office block coming in. Uh, this is a topic we've touched on many a times before, mm-hmm. Terence, where that's just taking the soul and the identity out of Dublin. What makes Dublin Dublin? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, they're saying it's the the prop up the the tourist industry, but it's not really because what what are tourists gonna come here to see? There's gonna mm. be nothing. Mm. They're, they're pushing the regular people are getting pushed out. There's a hotel going on every street corner. There's an office office block going beside that. Then, so before we know it, Dublin's just gonna be one big office block mm. surrounded by hotels, mm-hmm. and where are we all gonna be the likes of Kildare, Mead, Wicklow, Louth, yeah. and before you know it. They're gonna come in. They're gonna say, Do "You know what? You need here more hotels, more office blocks." So it's just it's stripping the soul away from the city. If anyone is listening from outside of Ireland and they say to me, "Then where do you recommend to come?" I'm not gonna say Dublin because there's gonna be nothing here for you to see. I'd yeah. recommend going to go and see Patrick Street in Cork. Go and see the Spanish Arch in Galway. Yeah. Go and see the Titanic Experience in Belfast because not Dublin, and this is our capital. This is our home. You know, and especially with you, on Ruddy, you know what I mean? You, you're the epitome. You've put working class Dublin people on the map through literature mm-hmm. and through film. And then people are coming to see that, you know what I mean? As you said, the commitments was a big hit in the US. Imagine someone in the US saying that now and they come over. Oh, where was that filmed? Oh, well, that that's a hotel now, sorry. Oh, yeah, and do you know where that? Oh, yeah, that's an office block now. Yeah. So I just feel like, I don't know, every week we talk about this yeah. and... 
it shouldn't be two young blitz in a tracksuit talking about this. It should be a fella in a suit going on the telly and addressing this, saying, no, we're actually going to draw a line here and we're going to not approve planning permission for that. We're going to take that back and see that mm. that should be a protected landmark. Merchant's, Ar- Merchant's Arch, when you think of Temple Bar, you think of walking through there. Yeah. When yeah. I walk through there with my daughter, I always have a joke and tell her leprechauns live here. Mm. And you, you need to watch, don't walk at the sides because you might step on a leprechaun. And she'd just be terrified walking through. And like, mm. it's a bit of a, she knows it's a laughing joke, but she'll walk dead uh, center through it. She won't walk at the sides because I always tell her you could step on a leprechaun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like that. And my earliest memories of that is walking over the Hapney Bridge with my dad, then walking through there to go to the Temple yeah. Bar. So imagine what, you're going to walk over the Hapney Bridge then, it's going to be a hotel in front of you. Mm. Well, Temple Bar itself, when I was your age, was going to be a bus depot. They were going to knock it all down and make a bus depot out of it. And that didn't happen, luckily enough. But uh, I agree with you. I don't, know, I don't have much to add, really. I agree with you completely and utterly. And I think people who come away saying Dublin's a great place, it's not because of something they saw. It's because of the people they heard, yeah. the people they met, the pubs they were in, the music they heard, just the general atmosphere uh, and obviously you need people for that. Mm. And I think it's a strange because, you know, the town, the, the city has been empty for a long, long time because of the pandemic and that. And it's only getting back on its feet again in a way. I, you know, I don't want to live in a museum. I live in Dublin. I don't want to live in a museum where everything is protected, where you can't build anything. Mm. I think, you know. There should be a constant flow and a change, but it seems, I don't know. I still can't get my head around Merchant's Arch. And I, I heard somewhere they're going to name the hotel the Merchant's Arch, but there'll be no Merchant's Arch. <laughs> there'll be no Arch. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever mm, to no. do that. And the Cobblestone, one of the most famous pubs, quite rightly. And I love the, what I like about the Cobblestone is that they have the traditional music, yeah. but you can still go down the back and have a chat and yeah. hear the music in the background. And they've no tellies. Well, another good thing. And... Uh, Again, that doesn't seem to make any sense to me at all. So I think, yeah, I think there should be things that are beyond planning that should be protected. You should have a, some sort of a committee of people involved, you mm. know, from different ages, different backgrounds. I don't know how you'd legislate for it, but, you know, there's so many streets in Dublin where there's no one living and there's empty floors above the shops. Yeah. I, go, I was in um, Copenhagen a few years ago and I was just wandering around so I had a lot of time just wandering around and in the evening in particular, people were coming out of their flats and apartments and sitting in small pubs in the corner and every place had a small shop. And you realize oh, they all live in the city. They're not legging it for the train to go an hour and yeah. a half to the only place they can afford to live in. So I think between our obsession with owning property and, you know, and the the gamble that renting is and the ludicrous level of renting, I don't know how you know, people survive at all, but it can't be sustained forever. I mean, eventually something's going to give and you're going to realize, actually, there's no one living in the city. And yeah. at the moment, the notion of building office blocks is just absurd, seeing as most people, Are going to be I don't think that's now. the dream either. People don't want, you know, some sort of hybrid will probably be the way with yeah. both the office and at home. Yeah. Working at home is in a way missing the point as well. It's a bit like talking about... Uh, online education it's brilliant you don't have to go to college clearly that's being said by somebody who never made any friends when exactly, they were in college yeah. missing the social I mean, aspect I was saying to somebody I, 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 my closest friend we were put sitting beside each other in school no idea what we learned that day but 50 years later we're still meeting and you know we're still great pals and that was the point of school yeah. now at this yeah. stage of my life once you get once you learn how to read and write 
there's nothing much else. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, and you only realise that years and years later. Mm. So, yeah, it, there's something particularly awful about it. There was a stage where, you know, the planners would have happily knocked down the whole city for roads. And that stopped. And some of the stuff that has been made and done, I think, is brilliant. Some of the planning has been really, really brilliant. And, you know, I couldn't fault. When I was, uh, I lived in Abbey Street for a while, um, late 80s. And I remember I, I was writing with a typewriter, you know, old fashioned, ping, ping, ding, 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 typewriter. And the window was open and I went, I had a break. I went off and I got a cup of coffee somewhere and I came back and the white paper, the white sheet of paper was grey from the smog. It was unbelievable. Like you could see it all the time in certain days when it wasn't windy and that's all gone, which is a great thing, you know. So the, things do improve, but the whole idea that people can't live in the city mm. is quite shocking, really. And knocking it for hotels, you know. I think it's great that people want to come to Dublin. I think it's brilliant. Uh, I remember I worked in London in 1978 and I remember seeing a guy with a uh, T-shirt and he was actually selling stuff on Piccadilly <coughs> to tourists and he had a T-shirt and it said, no, I'm not a fucking tourist. And I thought that was the most hostile thing I'd ever seen in my life. You know, really, really hostile. And it's still there with Brexit and the rest of it. Yeah. yeah. Distrust of the foreigner. And I'd hate if it was like that in Dublin, but you know, the notion of building more and more hotels and Airbnb yeah. having all the accommodation so that people who actually, the accents, the Dublin accents, which are actually as, an import, as, as important a part of the city as the GPO is or the Liffey is, the accents, the sounds, the words in the air, they're the city. If you go to Glasgow or uh, Liverpool and you're, you're sitting there, you come away, you had a great time. Part of it is because you heard all these accents mm. or you go to Brooklyn, you know, and you're having a terrific time because you think you're in a film because all of these accents yeah. are brilliant yeah. or anywhere in the world. And uh, it'll be weird. It's that way. Yeah. The accent and people generally are pushed out of the city. And that's what will. Well, that's, that's what it, it just mystifies me. And uh, yeah, it just it, some of the decisions, they just you wonder what? And, uh, you know, the Merchant's Arch, I don't know how they got through. Yeah. yeah, it's it's gone to on on Barcelona approved it like it, you have so to, it's happening. Yeah, they approved it. I'm nearly sure they did. It's gone to them anyways. Um, and then what I want to touch on is what they did. I was in Greece last year, and what they did over there. Any time they uh, were building something, mm. obviously there's gonna be thousands of archaeological things you can find mm. in Greece. Like if they found uh, anything, they had to stop building and excavate what they found, and then preserve that in what they found. So like if let's say they were building a metro station, there's metro stations all around Athens and you go down and there's like ancient pots, what they found, Yeah, yeah. you know, like that. And I was like, that's a great idea. Cause you're still getting, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. still getting yeah. what yeah. the purpose was. So you're still getting your metro yeah. station and you're getting a piece of history. Yeah. There's someone in actually in uh, Athens airport. There's yeah. a little exhibit. Well, most cities seem to manage it really well. You go to we Berlin and there's a, there's a big church that's left exactly as it was yeah. when the war ended. Remember, mm. they, you know, uh, it's a good yeah. way to commemorate Liverpool the same. Mm. So, yeah, a lot of places are very good at, uh, at, at incorporating the past with the present. Because you go, Dublin's been here for more than a thousand years, yeah. so you don't have to dig too deep to find history. But again, you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want, if you like, genuine progress halted just to protect all the past. Do you know what I mean? No, definitely not. So, but it shouldn't be all office blocks and hotels. No, definitely. It's just a money racket. Like, Down you know, on the Keys, remember they built like the council building and they found like a Viking yeah. settlement or whatever and they just Wood built it over. Key. 
they just built over it. Yeah, yeah. The fact that they're talking about knocking down the building of Moshi where the, the leaders in 1916 hit out. And they're like... Not very successfully, it has to be said. Well, no, yeah. In fairness, <laughs> if they're going to do a bank job, don't hide around the corner, you know what I mean? <laughs> you went from the GPO to Moshi, it wasn't that far. Well, I read it. Lots of descriptions of that. They didn't just hide out on Moore Street. When they left the side entrance of the GPO, when they were abandoning the GPO, it was on fire. And they came out onto Henry Street and then they made their way up and there was a barricade at the top of the street, you know, and they were just, there was slaughter when they came onto Moore Street, you know. So it's, it's extraordinary. You could do an awful lot with that, bringing it back to life. Mm. Yeah, and it's an important, Moore Street is a really important part of the cultural history of the city, working class yeah. So yeah, my father used to, I know my mother was telling me, I don't remember him doing it at all, but he worked in Bolton Street and uh, once a week he'd, you know, you'd have the, the sack bag, the sack, the, the, the cloth sack, and he'd get the vegetables and bring them home once a week, you know, and it's, um, uh, it was, a, it was, I, when I heard, I was quite surprised that my father would have done that, you know, because those, you know, back to the fifties or whatever, the men went off to work and the women did that sort yeah. of thing. So I thought, well, that complicates the picture a bit. The fact that my yeah. father did that because he was going down Moore Street, you know, and we've all got great story. And I remember when I was a kid, one of the great tests of whether you'd grown up or not was if you could go the one end of Moore Street to the other with some, without somebody saying, do you want any bangers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you could get to the other end you were a man yeah. <laughs> but they weren't asking no. you anymore and again you don't want the place to just to be preserved because I have good memories of Moore Street but it seemed I walked down Moore Street there recently and it's a disaster it's oh, really it's and it's it should you know it's a it's a, historically and it should be this present day it's it's a, it culturally really really rich not just because of 1916 but that's there as well, you know. Mm. Well, there we are. And that's that box dog. Yeah. Anyways, didn't that was a good conversation? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, any more suggestions? No, that that's all I had to grab. Thank says. fuck, is this podcast going on for hours already? Roddy's a busy man. Right, Roddy, tell us a bit about yourself. What was life like growing up? Life was quite good growing up. Where you if grew I up? In... I grew up in Kilbarrick on the north side. Um, when I was a kid. When I was a very young kid, I grew up on Kilbarrick Road, which is kind of, well, it's not a straight line, but it's from the coast and it could go all the way up to Coolock, you know, past Kilbarrick uh, Railway, uh, not Railway, Fire Station. Hoke Junction Dart was the nearest yeah. one to it. The Dart wasn't there at the time. But when I was a kid, there was a, a row of houses that I lived on on Kilbarrick Road and it was a farm on the other side of the road. And my side of the road was Dublin 5 Postal District. And you cross the road, you were in County Dublin. So it was literally the edge of the city. And you had the freedom of the world. Like you could just come out and wander the farms. And, you know, it was Flood's farm. And Mr. I don't ever remember Mr. Flood objecting to the fact that there were gangs of kids wandering around. We never did any harm or whatever. And Barnwalls was further down the road. And it was a field. And then gradually, just when, it be, when, just when I was in, uh, old enough to be interested in it, all the farmland was bought up either by the city corporation, as it was called, then the council. Yeah for what were called corporation houses or council houses or the like, you know, Bayside. Yeah. Like uh, that was built when I was a kid and that was a playground. The building site was a playground when I was a kid. So it went from being almost like a village on the edge of the city to being not the inner city, but a lot of people from the inner city Subble. came to live in Goodbye. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was a, it was brilliant. There were like there were vivid moments and I used a lot of them in my book, Paddy Clark, ha, ha, ha. but the road outside was dug up. And they put this huge pipe down 
and as a kid, you could run you could run the length of the pipe without bending over. It was incredible. And the dare was to get down at one end of the pipe before they put the water in it, you know, and run the length of the pipe in pitch darkness at one point. But there'd be a shore just ahead and you could get a little bit of light from the shore and you could literally run the length of the road down the pipe. And, you know, you can't do that now. Yeah. <laughs> it was just... It was just a, an amazing experience to store away. And Bayside, I remember myself and a friend climbed into the pipe in Bayside just when the houses were, there were some people living in the houses. And we were at a shore. We were under the ground at a shore. Shouting up. When anybody passed by. Yeah. <laughs> they had no idea. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was actually brilliant. Mostly um, women with prams, you know, yeah. newly married, the pram. Yeah. I must have terrified them in a way. Where yeah. the voice coming from? <laughs> that wasn't, you know, as a kid, you don't realise that. But so it was good. And my family life, my home life was terrific. You know, my parents were great. Yeah. Um, they were very funny people. Uh, my mother was a great. Uh, my mother was very precise in her memory, and she had great stories. Uh, not all of them funny. Um, and my father. Uh, he, my mother was very precise in her stories. My father embellished everything. He would, I remember asking him about, uh, I asked both of them about, you know, how, where they were born and what the conditions were. So my mother gave precise details as she knew them. My father, like, he remembered his birth. <laughs> you know, he remembered him. Uh, he, he remembered his father coming in to visit his mother in the rotunda. And he remembered being brought to be baptized. You know, so my mother was giving details that she had heard. My father spoofed and you think um, you kind of are a mixer like you're the, the in retrospect i might be yeah, yeah. in mm. retrospect i might be and they loved language they loved they loved uh they got great crack when they heard a word being used in an unusual way and it, it, it often then ended up being used in the house quite a lot you know so they were good crack and i remember my father used to change the lyrics of songs just for the, the crack as well there was a um dr Shivago, the film the theme music was a thing called, um, I can't remember what the song is called, but it was it was a big hit in the 1960s. It was Somewhere My Love. Uh, and I can't remember what the next line was, but my father used to sing some, I can't, Somewhere My Love, Up To Your Arse In Snow, because it was set in Russia in the wintertime. And he'd do that all the time, change lyrics to songs just for, for the crack. So... I mean, in many ways, and the primary school I went to was Skolasim in Rohini. There was no, there were no schools in Kubarik at the time. Mm. They came later, and my memories of of Skolasim in, in Rohini are very, very warm and very friendly. And I went there, uh, visited there. There was a small, there was a school for the little kids, and then there was a school for the boys, you know. And I visited both, and I felt really good walking in the door, and there was no, no bad memories yeah. lurking in the corner. It all yeah. felt. Good. And the buildings were still intact. And uh, so my memories of primary school would be particularly warm. So I very little to complain about, really, in um, my childhood. I think and particularly, I think, looking back as a writer, uh, that one foot in the countryside, one foot in the city, watching the place change as I grew up. And then, this, you know, when I when I started teaching, I went to the new community school that was bang in the middle of all these new houses. And that really was a head opener for me as well, because, I, you know, these kids were a bit younger than me, so I didn't know them. Mm. I was 21. 
you know, I was teaching then for my 17 year old. So it's only a four year gap Whereas the older mm. you get. It's nothing. But at the time, it's four big years in your life, you know. So I didn't really know these people. And then I went up and started teaching. And again, it, uh, as I said, it was a head opener. At the time, I wasn't thinking of being a writer, you know, or if I did, it was a really vague thing, like being a footballer, you know. Yeah. But uh, probably the perfect job for a writer to have in uh, in many ways because you hear so many different people so many different voices mm-hmm. all day sorry oh well, yeah primary or secondary school teaching secondary so what subjects were you teaching in the good years english with a bit of geography and the bad years geography with a bit of english <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah so you were saying it's the perfect job to start but it was perfect but it was a good it was you know it was brilliant i mean i liked the job per se and i i i i, I don't know I'd be very close to retirement now. I probably could have taken, if I was still a teacher or I could have taken early retirement, I'm not sure. Would I have been as happy? Yeah. I did 14 years. Would I have been as happy after 34 years? Who knows? I don't know. Uh, that might be just a decision in some ways. I don't know. But the 14 years I did it, I mean, I was really, really, I really, really enjoyed it. And um, and did you want to be a teacher when you were younger? No. When did that come into play? Uh, in part, really, I went to, after uh, school, I went to UCD and did a degree in English and Geography. And it was one of the options. And uh, so I, I decided, well, I'll have a go and see what it's like. So I actually went around the corner to see if they'd take me to, to uh, what they called the HDIP back then, mm. higher diploma in education. And you had to go to the school to do a few hours in the morning. And then you went to UCD across the other side of the city in the afternoon. Mm. So they took me in and I, I actually, they then started when there was a teacher absent, they'd give you the the, the, the H dips their hours to teach and you, you were, were the paid absent teacher they got an awful life Jesus Christ yeah, but the, t- the subjects that I was supposed to metalwork woodwork religion <laughs> home economics basically you were just babysitting until yeah, the teacher, yeah, the teacher came back yeah. but actually just being in the company of all these kids I just thought it was brilliant you know I really did from the first day maybe the second day I just thought this is great this yeah. is really really great so uh, yeah. and then you were saying like when you were a teacher at 21 then you had to, there was this dream of being a writer, but it was like being a footballer. When did the dream start like coming into play then? Or, and did you know since you were a kid that you wanted to be I, a writer? I became a big... I, I didn't learn... As, as if, again, I don't want to sentimentalise. Sometimes when we're trying to remember accurately what happened a long time ago, it's hard not to, you know, sentimentalise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically, we make it up a lot of our memories, I think. But if memory serves me right, I wasn't learning how to read in school. You know, it was a big class... I was very happy in school, but I wasn't learning how to read. And my mother realized that. And she taught me how to read uh, using comic books, the old fashioned, like the Beano and the Dandy, mm. those comic books. Perfect way to, re- to learn how to read, you know, with the speech bubbles over the head. Of yeah, you know, who's saying what. And uh, so I copped onto it then. And once I started reading, I, I, I don't, I, today, now, I, I never go anywhere without a book, you know, and if I miss the bus, I don't mind because I'm going to read a page or so waiting for the next one. Or if a, tra- a plane is delayed or something, I don't care because I've got a book. And I, you know, I wake up early in the morning and I read and I just, it's, it's a vital part of my life, reading. And I think it goes back to that because I really appreciated learning how to read, I think. So there was a vague itch in the back of my mind thinking I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind having a stab at that to see. But 1982, with a t- as a teacher, I had June, July and August off, you know. Yeah. And I went to London. Uh, got a bed sit in Wood Green in North London. And the following morning, I uh, went to the local library and I just started writing and I said, I'll stay here for the morning. And that's 
by the end of the summer, I had a huge, I had a whole pile of copy books full of what I now know was rubbish. But I got in, I got into the routine of writing because that's the, that's the, uh, it, it's kind of the boring fact of writing that you can't do it unless you sit by yourself and put hours into it. And by the end of the summer, I had trained myself in a way to do that. So that gave you the itch. Yeah, without denying. Like the World Cup was on in 1982. So I managed to do a bit of work in the in the afternoons and, or the morning and the afternoons and then go watch a match, you know. So I didn't deny myself the football. Yeah. And I went to a lot of gigs and I went to a lot of films and I did, you know, I enjoyed myself in London. But I, I think it was a good thing to do because I got away from friends and that sort of distraction and just got into the discipline of writing. And then I never lost it, really. I just It was a good while before I had anything published, but I used to do a bit every every evening. But it's I good that you didn't take right. all that away, because I think if you deprive yourself of too much and you're just focused on writing, 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 you'll end up painting it quick. Well, I think in retrospect, what you again, I can only talk on my own behalf, but you have to be kind of kind to yourself as well. You know, you learn tricks to get the work done without actually killing yourself, you know. And as well as that, I think, you know... It's all about experience. So if you stay in a room all the time and deny yourself experience, you're denying yourself things to write about, really. Inspiration. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it took me a good while to find anything worth writing about, I've got to say, but or finding something that I wanted really, really to write about. But I got into the discipline of it and just stayed at it, really. And I think that's the big difference between possibly me and somebody who wants to be a writer but never gets around to it because they don't sit and do it. Mm. And there's no glamour. Yeah. And nobody gives a shite. That's the, you know, that's really important to know that really no one gives a shite except you. And if you can live with that and you're happy with that and you're not, you know, then it's grand, really. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense when you say it like <laughs> No, it does, it does. Mm. You have to be your own, uh, you have to be prepared for you're the criticism. You're your own boss, that's yeah. it, you know. But you have to be prepared for the criticism as well. Like, you were putting all these hours into this and you give it to someone and you're like, it's actually not that good, you know. <laughs> it's you a tricky thing. Giving, th- giving stuff to friends is tricky because they're your friends, you yeah. know. So chances are they won't give you an honest assessment of it, really. Mm-hmm. And then there's envy comes into it as well, you know. Yeah. And envy... I'd recognize envy myself. You know, you're envious of people. So, that you know, without intending to, you might, you know, give them a dig. You know, I don't mean a physical dig. <laughs> yeah. Without intending to or even being conscious of it. So actually showing the work, that's another thing. Uh, the decision or the ability to know when a piece of work is finished and ready for somebody else to read it. And I think sometimes people are a bit too eager to show stuff and they talk about it. Or as I've seen, stick it up on Facebook, the last place on earth you should do that, you know. So it's the ability to know when it's done or it's done as much as you can do it. So then you show it to somebody to read. But people, I think, are too keen and eager to get it done as quickly as possible. And and probably facial expressions then from people who are telling them how wonderful it is while avoiding eye contact. Mm. It, It must be very dispiriting. Hmm. But you know, I think as well, it's a, a mix of like that Irish thing where we don't let people get too big for their boots. Uh, yeah, I have no problem with that. Yeah. Mm. You actually have, I heard this story uh, from Tommy Ternan, but you got a nice humbling before. Yeah, I didn't need it, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, but I, it, it, it's a precious memory. I thought it was just brilliant. Uh, it's a good while ago now. It must be possibly 25 years, maybe. Yeah, possibly I'd arrange. Both myself and another friend of mine, we were both we both work alone at home and we were saying how much do we miss going for a pint, you know, maybe on a Friday with people from work. 
So he said, we'll do it, you know, in our own sad way, we'll do it. So we decided we'd go into town and we'd uh, meet on the dart and uh, probably go start in Mulligan's on Poolbeg Street, you know. But I was so eager, I got on the dart before him. <laughs> so I was waiting outside Tara Station, Tara Street Station, leaning against the wall. No phones to distract you back in those days or anything. So you had to rely on what you were way more entertaining. Yeah, imagination. <laughs> so there I was leaning against the wall, waiting for my friend and a gang of lads wearing the 25 years ago equivalent of yourselves, the tracksuits, you know, walking like pigeons, you know, the way the Throwing shapes. Yeah, yeah. And four or five of them passed me by and one of them broke away from the group and he came straight up to me, right up to my face. And he said, are you Roddy Doyle? And I said, I am, yeah. He says, so what? <laughs> <laughs> just letting you know and he just turned around and joined the lads and they moved on I, I kind of really wanted to go hang on you ask me you know I wasn't yeah. telling you but it was so funny you know it was just so and still is so funny and I don't know I've told that story possibly hundreds of times mm. now because you know I told it on to, to Tommy and then you hear it and you have to tell it again but still so funny and it does capture in a way I think Dublin, if I was asked to tell us a story that no way captures why you love Dublin, it would be that story, I think, because yeah. the put down, you know, two words. And if I was writing it, it would be so W-H-A apostrophe. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah. what? Yeah. We don't <laughs> do tears really, in the He wasn't language. aggressive, you know. Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, so what? He wasn't spitting at me in any sense. It was just, he knew he was being funny. Yeah. And... um that's what I, I really liked that, you know. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> you know, it's not impossible that it would happen in Liverpool or, you know. Yeah. But it just seems to me something in the Dublin air. Yeah. yeah. That might be just sentimentality, but if it is, I don't care. It's grand. But I think you, well, I don't it's not really what I think. It's a fact that you kind of encapsulate that perfect in, in your storytelling. Thank you. Um, like you have that Dublin walking class like the dialogue that you write, mm. you know what I mean? So that obviously had to come from, you're writing about Barrytown, uh, Barrytown. Barrytown, yeah. I, I wanted to write, I didn't want to use the name of a real place because I actually wasn't basing characters on real people. Yeah. So I thought if, for example, when I was writing The Commitments, these characters, Jimmy Rabbit and Deco Cuff, the characters who were in the band or the manager of the band and Joey the Lips, they weren't people I knew. I was just making them up. So I thought, well, if I make them live in Kilbarrick, immediately people are going to wonder who's, oh, who's, who, who, yeah. who's that. And I just thought, no, that would just distract. And also I was teaching in Kilbarrick. My parents were living in Kilbarrick and I was thinking, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to. Cause wanna, hassle, yeah. Yeah, a bit of grief. So I just thought, well, I could add an extra station to the dart, you know. And there's an American band, Steely Dan. Yeah, Railing in the Years. Well, there you go. That was on their first album. And this record, Barrytown, is the fourth. Well, you know what a record is? Well, round I do on the, yeah. Yep. Wax. It's the fourth track on the first side of their third record, Pretzel Logic, which was released in 1974. And I bought, and it's one of the best albums ever made. And Barrytown is that track. And it sounds Irish. It's actually a small town. And I met yesterday a man who lives there. It's a very small town in upstate New York, about two hours above the city of New York, you know. And there's one in Wales, I think, and there's, there's one, one in New Zealand. Yeah. And there may be, I'm not aware of anyone in Ireland. But the two fellas who co-wrote the commitment script with me, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, when they came to Dublin first, they got, in, they got into a taxi in um, Dublin airport and asked them to bring them to Barrytown. 
and they spent most of the afternoon trying to find Barrytown. I'm sure the taxi driver was, <laughs> was loving it. <laughs> like the, you know, the money raking. Yeah. <laughs> but they knew it was somewhere between the, because there's a song in the book, The Commitments, where it names the art stations, including Barrytown. You know, so they knew it was somewhere between Kilbarrick and Bayside. Yeah. But it was just this mythical land that doesn't exist. So they could never pin it down, really. Mm. So, um, but it freed me up. And, you know, so if I have a character turning left, it's because I want them to turn left, not because there's a left turn there. Yeah. It suited me. And I made up a, I made up a, a fictional pub and I could do what I wanted with it, you know. Mm. So um, it, it, was a, it was a balance between trying to make it as real as you possibly could and then also making it up so that you could have the freedom to do what you wanted yeah. to do. So but the thing yeah, is it we- worked out well. I mean... That was a, if you like, almost a whimsical moment sometime in possibly February 1986. And 35 years later, you're asking me about Barrytown. Yeah. So it's brilliant. We are reading the stuff that these people are saying, and it's like a person has actually said it. Because like, we know like the stuff that they're saying. We could picture someone saying that. It's common stuff, day-to-day uh, lingo. Definitely. That's what we were talking about earlier on. I was sure when you read the book, you can clearly tell. And it? it's literally, you can nearly picture it in your own gaff. Well, Do you get me? Yeah, well, it's lovely to hear you say that. There was a lot of, at the beginning, particularly because the first book was The Commitments, or the first book that where I knew what I was doing, is the first <laughs> book that was published, was The Commitments. And I did a lot of experimenting with how to try and get the Dublin accent on paper. And I, I went overboard at times so that you'd really, you'd, it was too much hard work. You'd read a sentence and you'd think, what's he saying there? And that yeah. was me, I'd written it. And it's still, I come back the day later and I said, I can't, no, I don't remember what I'm trying to say there. So... You know, you t- you make compromises so that you can read it. You get a sense of the Dublin accent without it being hard work. You know, yeah. so a lot of uh, trial and error, a lot of experimentation. But because I think I was doing it for the first time, and there was a little feeling that I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing. It's like using bad language when you're a little kid. Yeah, wondering is anybody going to hear you? You know, I wasn't a little kid anymore, and I could say what I wanted. But it was like deliberately misspelling words. And I was an English teacher. Yeah. So I decided, like, if anybody said at the beginning of a sentence, anyway, I'd add an n, a n n y, and it became anyway. And you have to set it. There's no choice. That's the way it is. Anyway, and sometimes anyways, and then anyways, and I'd you know, experiment with that. And if it looked clear enough, I'd say, yeah, I've got, I've got away with that. The problem then is that overdoing it, putting too much of it in. Yeah. But that's, again, uh, trial and error. But it's a very short book. And it didn't take me all that long to write the commitments. But a lot of it ended up in the bin mm. because of that. You had a, you had a, you noticed how he writes his books. What was it that right. you called out about the books? The, the way there's no chapters in it. Yeah. yeah. Some do, yeah. Some books do, yeah, yeah. no, because I was looking at the, the Paddy Clark, ha ha ha, has no yeah. chapters in it, and then no. the van has no chapters in it either. There are breaks in With Paddy it. Clark. Paddy Clark is the shape it is because I wrote Paddy Clark after I'd finished the first three, you know, the commitments of Snapper in the van, mm. same family, really, the same kind of world, the same uh, characters in a lot of cases, and I wanted I wanted to try something else, you know, and I thought I, I, I became the father. Of a, uh, of a baby at that time and I was still working full time and suddenly the circumstances of my life were completely different and I, I, I was uh, busy in a way that I never was before you know because I was also writing I can't remember uh, the script for the commitments was coming out like like my head was full yeah 
And then there was another baby, you know. So I was writing this stuff and grabbing any moment I could, 20 minutes before going to work, or the odd time when the two babies would fall asleep at the same time. I could <laughs> go into the room and do a bit of work. And after a while, I, 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 for some, probably because I'd had a baby, I was thinking of my own childhood. I decided, well, I'm going to write from the point of view of a 10-year-old boy. And I really tried to get to the, as near as I could to being a 10-year-old boy. And I remember going to my parents' house and going into the kitchen. And it was more or less the same as it had been when I was a kid. And getting down on my hands and knees just to remember what a kitchen, what it was the size of it when I was a much smaller person. And, the, you know, you'd put your hand up to open the fridge, whereas, you know, it's an adult, you want reach more near, yeah. you know. So um, little things like that. And then I realized, like, you know, when you're looking at kids, small kids, if they're wandering around town, they don't look at the big things or the important things. They look at the chewing gum on the ground. They'll, yeah. they'll start counting the cigarette butts on the ground. They don't differentiate between the big stuff and the small stuff. And that that's why Paddy Clark has no chapters, because he's going from joke. He hears a joke and he puts the joke down and then something really important is happening in his life. But he's not aware of it because conscious of it, his parents are breaking up, but it takes him a long time to mm. see that. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I, and in a way, that's because I had so little time to write it that when I had it all done, I typed it, I printed it all out and got down literally on the floor of my office and began to rearrange everything to see if I could have some sort of shape on it. And actually, I realized then the fact that I had very little time each day to write was a good thing because it it, it actually was kind of an accurate way of capturing the head of a 10-year-old boy. Yeah. Do you know? So it worked out as a what was, in many ways, a pain in the arse was actually a virtue. It worked Lesson out in quite the schools. Well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's the same with the van as well, with the no chapters, which yeah. I've been reading. Yeah, so. I didn't, I didn't want to. I just wanted again. There are breaks, but I wanted it to flow. You know, just yeah. to flow. Which it does, which it does. Yeah, but yeah. I was just remember, I said the Calvin. I was like, where the fuck is the no chapters in it? Yeah, you know what I mean? Because you can't, I can't say to him. I'm at chapter five. I'm at page yeah, fucking two hundred. You know, sometimes you become aware, as I, be, I became aware. You can break the rules. That's one of the jobs, I think, yeah, as a... Your I, book. Yeah, I want to, and I, I don't want to sound pretentious, but if you're an artist in any way, one of the things you want to do, one of the reasons you become an artist is because you love art. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I love reading. But at the same time, you want to be your own Stand artist. Stand out. And you want... So I decided, well, I'm going to write books and stories set in working class Dublin. I don't want formal chapters as such. Yeah. I don't want it to be like a 19th century yeah. novel. I love Charles Dickens, but I don't want to be Charles Dickens. Yeah. So I, 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 one way of being a bit different, and it's not revolutionary because there's loads of books that don't have chapters, was not to have chapters. But it's just not the common way to go about it. So you just... Yeah, and after a while then, you, you become... I've been lucky. I've, I've written 12 novels. And after a while, you want to break your own rules. Yeah. Do you know? Because Change I don't want to be stuck in a rut writing yeah, the yeah, same exactly, thing all the yeah. time. So that's the next challenge. And that's one of the reasons why some of the later books do have chapters. Yeah. Do you know? Because I decided, well, I'll break my own rule and then go back to and chapters. And go back to that and just mix and match yeah, it, yeah. do whatever the fuck yeah. you want. It's good to have that freedom, isn't it? So you're in the middle of teaching, Roddy, and you're just writing these... Just back a little bit now, we are. Just yeah, now taking it yeah. Well, you're writing these... It's masterpieces are at this way. Well, well, they are, aren't they? The, the, the cornerstone of they uh, turned out to be. Yeah. I can't answer that question, but I accept the compliment. But, <laughs> you don't need to answer the question; it's a fact. <laughs> but um, so obviously, we knew you were coming on. Me and Terence are having a bit of a crash course and what you've written. Uh, 
in the van. You make it a reference to Dunphy because it's the backdrop is Italian 90. Yeah. And you say uh, one of the specials is, can I get a single about a bag of chips? That was something we talked about before. Yeah. Uh, and a Dunphy, which was a sausage. Yeah, in batter. Yeah, but right now I might sound a bit stupid because this might be fairly obvious when you do explain it, but when people are reading stuff, you're saying like, oh, they are picking up the newspaper and saying, give us a deco. I want to have a deco at that. Yeah. What does that mean? A look. Yeah, why? I don't know. Where is it? Have a deco? I've never I grew heard up that. with that phrase. My father used to say it. Mm. See, I was afraid. He'd say it for fun as much as anything else. You yeah. know, he'd, again, I, as I said earlier, he loved him and my mother. They loved language and messing with so words. So you don't know where that actually came from? I don't. Somebody else could explain that to you. But, yeah. it, you know, when I think about it, I never thought about it before, actually. But when I think normally you can explain things if you give them a bit of thought. But actually how a deco. Yeah, became a bit of a look. See, I that's grand. I'm, I was afraid that something was going to happen. That you'd be like, <laughs> how did you not know it meant this? And I'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But now that you <laughs> don't know, I feel it was an exam. Yeah, it's your bleeding book. <laughs> there was a quiz in one of the newspapers when I was sixty. There was a quiz uh, in one of the newspapers on the website. You know, ten questions. Yeah, I got eight out of ten. And you're all about your stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> other people will do much better than me. Yeah. Because when I'm finished the book, I tend not to go back to it. No. Yeah, that's the same with us. We don't listen to this podcast. No. <laughs> Wise move. Wise move. But uh, another thing that happened was. I said on a previous episode, uh, A1, Sharon. Yeah. And it was about the snapper. Look, Terence is raging. <laughs> but Terence had never heard of the snapper. Yeah. And I didn't have a telly growing up before. I'm not like, didn't just not watch your stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> didn't watch anything. It, you missed, like, you we, missed a lot. We just yeah. looked at static. He didn't boycott, he didn't boycott <laughs> your stuff. It's just general. But yeah. tell him what you thought. What, A1, Sharon? Yeah, yeah, I just thought like, so, <laughs> obviously, I've heard A1 Chardon over the years. Mm. I just thought you'd put A1 and a common name after it. All right, A1 Chardon. Yeah, 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 so A1 Anto, A1 Chardon, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. Now, I'd only heard Chardon over the years, but I was like, yeah, Chardon's a common name. So I thought that's what it was. I didn't realise that that was actually iconic. Yeah, and that's <laughs> what we're saying is that's how much of an impact your subs that they having on pop culture that no Terrence actually thought that was just a normal saying no idea how many women called Sharon have cursed me for calling but oh, this is another thing I wanted yeah. to call you out on why is the characters called Chardon and Darden because my in-laws I said were from Wexford they always get me to say Chardon because how they say it so in the snap that's exactly why I was thinking <sighs> even as you were talking as you were saying Chardon I was wondering if I was to do it again would I try to spell that yeah. Chardon instead of Sharon, but it's it's virtual impossibility. Well, it's the same way with Tardens, Tardens and yeah. Chardon. Like it's we, you, you really you hit the nail on the head with that one. You know quite well. <laughs> choice, but nevertheless, women called Sharon. I've made their lives a misery. Apparently, you know, it wasn't my intention. <laughs> <laughs> You're making it hard on us as well because it's like the little pony trick that I have. Right. Get calm down, get him to say it, go say it now. <laughs> Chardon. That's the only reason you're still together. Yeah, probably is, yeah. <laughs> but now, in fairness, they're big fans of your work as well, so. That's nice. See, now they'll, yeah. they'll be like, Jesus, now Calvin got to call him out on that. Yeah. <laughs> you wanted to say something? Yeah, no, yeah, no, so I just wanted to take it back a little bit because we were jumping ahead of schedule down the timeline and all, ready, yeah? So you, you said you started uh, teaching at 21, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and then you were teaching for 14 years. Yeah. But you brought the commitments out in the meantime. Yeah. How many years after you were teaching? 
Commitments was myself and a friend of mine, John Sutton, self-published, as they call it, the Commitments in 1987. So that's eight years. Eight years after you were teaching. Yeah. And then you continued teaching for another six then. Uh, yeah. Was yes, the Commitments the only one you brought out while you were no, still teaching? No, the Snapper came out in 1990 and the Van came out in 1990. So they all, they all came out before Those you stopped teaching? came out and the film came out and I had a couple of plays on in the SFX Centre, which was on Upper Sherrard Street. It's an apartment block now, but it was brilliant. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. Surprise, yeah. It was an amazing venue. It was the parish hall, really, mm. for Gardner Street Parish. And it was an amazing venue. I saw The Clash there and um, The Smiths and uh, The Pretenders. Amazing band. And the stage was huge, absolutely mm. huge. But it's gone now. But I saw that all, that all happened when I was still teaching. And I think in ways, I didn't want to leave teaching because I really enjoyed the teaching. But it also, you know, it it kept me feet on the ground. I don't know. I, I, I you know, I'm trying to remember what it might have been like when I was much, much younger. Say when the commitments, had its premiere in the Savoy in Dublin, an amazing experience. The, you know, the minute the, st- the song at the very beginning before the film, Treat Her Right. Robert Arkin singing Treat Her Right. He played Jimmy Rabbit and he's singing that song. And people were up out of their seats before the film even started because that song is so brilliant. Yeah. And such a great, great atmosphere. And it was a brilliant night. But I was into work the following morning. I was on the dart. Were you head? No. <laughs> no, not really. No, the big head, perhaps. Yeah. You know? yeah. But actually going into work was the best thing I could have done in many, many ways, in mm. retrospect. I might, that might be just stupid, but I, for a long time, I, I saw no reason why I couldn't be both a teacher and a writer, you know. And um, it was only when life got really, really, when there weren't enough hours in the day, I really yeah. had to make my mind up. Something you know? I was going to yeah. say, you must have been taking up a serious amount of hours anyways. Doing I find it sometimes when I look back and, you, you know, now at this stage of my life, six years doesn't seem like a long time, but when you're living them back then, it is a long time. But when I look, say, between 1987 and 1993, and I can make a list of the things that I did in those six <coughs> years at the same time as becoming a father and all that, and teaching, I, try and, I find it hard to imagine. But, you know, if I look back at even six active years now, I still get a lot done in those years. I seem to be just... I, I'm very disciplined, you know, so I do, I do, I work every day. I don't work weekends, but I, you know, I'm total self-employed. Nobody could give a toss if I go up to the office or not, but I always do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's up to me. So, um, but it was a, an amazing time, It's but it's hard now looking back on it just to calculate in a way or account for how come I got so much done you know it's really and I didn't have you know as well as that the sheer labor of it because I wrote the commitments by hand and then I typed it out but I did lots of drafts now I can you can do it with you know on a laptop in a fraction of the time yeah and the the, it's actually a thing I miss about um the old days for example the noise of an electric typewriter it feel it sounds like work yeah, kadunk, kadunk, kadunk. The overall, like you know, yes, is a more rewarding when you get to the end of a page. In a way, like, yeah, and I believe there's an app you can get and put in your laptop that'll give you the sound and the little ding at the end. <laughs> yeah, which I just thought, no, that's just silly. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't do it. 
But I did see, I was, I can't remember, whenever I'm in, you know, when it's a book tour or something like that, sometimes I'm only in a city for 24 hours. But if I have a couple of hours, I always try and go somewhere to see something. And I went, I think I was in San Francisco, and I went to a, a museum, and there was an exhibition of old typewriters. Mm. And I, I was almost tearful looking at them. And the temptation to go on to eBay or something or buy an old one just to hear the ka-dunk, ka-dunk, ka-dunk. But it's not, you know, obviously you could It's not efficient. Daft. But it was, um, it was a brilliant sound because also, because I, I wrote by hand, I knew when I was making that sound, I was nearly done, you know. This, yeah. was, the, this was the last hurrah. So, um, yeah, but it just... Uh, I've always been, sometimes the word prolific is used as if it's an insult somehow or other, you know, but I've always been, I've always had ideas queuing up really. Like, you know, sometimes you look over the skyline over Dublin Bay and you can see the planes Yeah. before the pandemic, the planes getting ready to land, you know, and I think sometimes the ideas were a bit like that, you know. Um, so when there was one, I was finishing one, I was getting itching to get dug into another one, you know. Yeah. yeah. So that's the way it worked out back then. Yeah. yeah, and you were saying about, uh, earlier there about the commitments, the snap on the van, and how they're similar, similar actors in the mm -hmm. working class thing. Why did you stop that? Why did you move away from that then? Well, in a way, I didn't. I just decided to get out of that particular house. Because the, the, snapper, would have been successful. the snapper and the van. Well, the snapper is, you know, set so much in the house and then mm -hmm. a lot of the van. I'm talking about the books now. Yeah. Because yeah. the books are there before the films are Yeah, made, yeah, right? yeah. And I just wanted to get out of that house and then I thought well I'll go back there's a, a, another, a Dublin writer Dermot Bulger uh, he's brilliant and he wrote this fantastic uh, he's from Finglas and he wrote this fantastic novel called The Mother's Daughter and there's a there's a, a long passage in the book where he talks about the layers underneath in Finglas so it's not just today yeah. there's history underneath it and history mm. so I think in a way that's what got me back to writing about Paddy Clark in Barrytown 25 years before, you know, or it would have been, yeah, 20 years before the other books were set when it's still being built. Yeah. Mm. And his playground, like mine, was the was the building sites, mm. you know. So and then the next book I wrote after that was The Woman Who Walked Into Doors. And that's yeah. about a woman who's in a violent that's, marriage. I just want to talk to you about that. And I always saw her as not literally being the next living next door to the rabbits who were in the first three books but maybe living on the same road yeah but whereas if you went into the rabbit household that word functional it's a loving it's a chaotic but it's a loving house and at the end of the snapper the baby i think is lucky to be going into that house yeah because it'll be cherished and loved and i knew that you know if i started insisting that every household is like that there's a dishonesty to that it's a fairy tale then. yeah so that not every not every story is a is a successful one. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll go down, I'll go down the road a bit and in through another door, and just for just to see if I can. This was the book I started writing when I gave up teaching. So I went from grabbing moments and the holidays. You know, when you're teaching, you have a lot of holidays, so you can get a lot of work done. But I had all the time in the world. I had you know all day, and the days felt long. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write, I decided I'm going to write from the point of view of a woman. And I couldn't have done it, I think, if I'd been teaching because I wouldn't have had the time just to and I wouldn't have been able to accept that most of what I'm writing here is rubbish and I'm going to have to throw it in the bin yeah. while I try to get to know the character. So there was a lot more, uh, a lot more getting to know that character involved. But it was I wasn't abandoning that world. I was just looking at it from the eyes of a different character, you know. Yeah. And the one after that, then I decided I'd go right back to the beginning of the 20th century. Just 
at first just for the sheer heck of it. <laughs> you know, just because so, you can. Yeah. I just want to ask you about the topics that you're writing about. So in the woman that walked into Dodge, you're writing about a woman who's suffering in domestic abuse. Yeah. Uh, in the snapper, you're writing about a girl who is going through an estranged pregnancy. Um, yeah. In the van, it's a, a middle-aged man who's at the losing his job and probably... For a middle-aged man to lose his job in a household like that, that's a, that's a sense of purpose. I put the bread on the table kind of thing. It's his self-definition. Yeah. Definition it's of his and job, he's, yeah, he's, he's kind of looking for his next meaning. So, like, them three topics there, yeah, they're, like, stuff, when especially at the time when you're writing them, but that's stuff that everybody can relate to, mm. but it's just not spoken about. So do you not think, like, are they kind of ahead of that time in a way? Well, I always felt that, uh, you know, I've always felt that working class people are way ahead of the posse when it comes to social change, you know, because yeah. when I was writing The Snapper, that whole idea of legitimacy and illegitimacy yeah. was taken off the statute books. It became, you know, there was no such thing as an, a, a legitimate or an illegitimate child in 1987 when I was writing that book. But I think working class people had made their mind up about that decades before, Yeah, you know. And just because it became sanctioned by the state made no difference. So what I wanted to do, among the other things with the snapper, was to kind of celebrate. Now, you know, the circumstances of her pregnancy are unfortunate. And I'd have to be, I'd, if I was writing the book today, I'd have to write it differently. Definitely. Yeah, I don't but, think it, it aged well. That circumstance wouldn't go down well now. Yeah, but once it's accepted, I think that this was written, that particular passage, yeah. probably late 1986, early 1987. But I would, you know, the temptation to rewrite it isn't there. I think it'd be stupid. But there's a, there's a lot of other stuff. You know the way then she takes command of her story and she says it's a Spanish sailor who's the yeah. father. I think she could still get away with that, but it'd be much harder for it because all of, including her, they'd all have mobile phones, they'd all have Instagram, they'd all have Twitter, they'd all, there'd be, you know, and, and if it came to any sort of criminal thing, there'd be CCTV footage. Mm. So it'd be much, it's a it's a more difficult story to tell, now, but you yeah. could still tell it. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't think in a way it wasn't that, what with the snapper, it ends up that she really wants the child and she insists that the child comes into the house and into the world under her conditions. Yeah. Having, you know, you know, if you like, it, it, the initial the initial event wasn't as she would have wanted it. That mm. sounds, you know, yeah. veiled or it sounds a bit in a way, weak, it's just... but it'll do. But so that she takes command of the story and then it becomes almost a celebration. And yeah. then the father... He becomes almost overnight this modern man and he's reading every woman. Interestingly, I'll tell you how far, you know, when we were making the film in 1982, this would have been 1992, there was a referendum about abortion information, whether it would be illegal to have books and magazines in the country that had information about abortion. And the snapper, there's a scene in the snapper where he goes into the library and takes out every woman. And that scene was shot the day after the referendum and if as it happened overwhelmingly pe people voted favor in favor of allowing books with abortion information right so the scene could go ahead in Rohini library it was shot in Rohini library if it had gone the other way they wouldn't have been able to shoot that scene in Rohini library because they would have had to take every woman off the shelf Madness. right that's 1992 so that's not prehistory that's 29 years ago so that if you like that's the type of world in which I was writing the book and um, 
So the things have changed. And, you know, at the very, very beginning of the book, Sharon says, you know, and she says it immediately um, when Jimmy, her father, says, do you want to keep it? And, she, you know, then she realizes what he's saying. And she says abortion's murder. She says that in 1986 when I wrote it. If I was writing it today, she wouldn't say that. No. She wouldn't say it yeah. because she wouldn't believe it. Yeah. She wouldn't think it. And regardless of what your beliefs are, mm. she wouldn't think it. That character yeah. wouldn't think it. So there's things that would, I'd have to do differently right through the book. Obviously, the big one is the sexual encounter and how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you create uh, an episode that is consensual but still at the same time leads to regret? Yeah, that's what I wanted to say to that isn't nearly just the fact that that's kind of like just a grey cloud over the plot that you just need Sharon to be pregnant it, well, like how she ended up pregnant is like it doesn't really matter it's a cold way of looking at it but I think a lot of things you know when you're when you're writing you're wondering you know you're going to have a character murdered and you're wondering how will I do that mm. and it's not what you think in your real world yeah and it's the same in a way you're, it's all about words and choosing the words and choosing the right words that tell the story and as I said, I felt I, I did it in a clear way back in 1986. And then when they were when they were filming it uh, in what was the old shield, the car park at the old shielding hotel in Rohini, it's now gone. It's a block of apartments, believe it or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> they shot the scene at different angles and they ended up, if I'm remembering right, with the scene is shot where the camera is below them, whereas they also shot it from a a crane where it was the camera was above them and it looked much more violent in a yeah. way or mm. much more forceful than was wanted. So it's still, you know, an unpleasant moment. That's again a weak way of describing it. But if I was to write it now, Completely I'd have different. to go back a bit yeah. and rethink it and come up with different words you know, yeah. to make yeah. sure it's absolutely clear that this is, as I say, consensual. Yeah. But then it would have to be accepted that sometimes, you know, we do consent to events that we later regret. Yeah. You know, that they're not mutual. You know, yeah. you can't, you know, you can say, yes, I'll do this or yes, I'm happy Doesn't with mean this you're gonna have a good and time. then change your mind later on. Yeah. And that's the quandary that she would be in. But having found herself in that quandary, she decides... I'm going to do something about this yeah. rather than I think what made the snapper a bit different than rather than go into a mother and baby's home or disappear for a while and come back and have the baby handed over to some other family. She decides, no, it's mine. Mm. And actually, she gets no argument from the family from that point of view. It's just then the comedy is around who's the dad. Yeah. Mm. That's how they shut me up. That's that covered up. Yeah. Anyway. So Calvin, shut your mouth. Yeah. Um, yeah, right, Do you have right. something you want to... Yeah, Rosie. That's where I wanted to move on to. Yeah, Rosie. We're yeah. jumping forward a good bit here, so... Do you yes. reckon we're not jumping forward about playing 40? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's some of your more recent stuff. Yeah, that was filmed in 2018. Yeah. And it's just relatable to so much that's happening. Unfortunately, that's yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, it's changed. the right word. But that's why I just want to ask your thought process through that. Rosie right. and what made you want to do that? A couple of years before the film was made, I was uh, in the kitchen, half listening to the radio, the news. All right, I don't listen to the, you know, the sparky lads in the mornings. I yeah. don't listen to them at all. Can't cope with them. So I listen to, <laughs> I listen to the news. If I listen at all, I listen to the news. 
And there was a woman on the, the, the news describing her day before, the day before. And she described how she'd woken up in a hotel and she'd spent a big chunk of the day getting herself and her five children across the city to the places where three of them went to school, I think, and the other two weren't in school yet. And that she had to spend the rest of the day trying to find somewhere to spend the following night. And she was brilliant. She was very calm, very clear. Uh, what really gave me, if you like, pause for thought was, she said, and my partner couldn't help because he had to go to work. And that really throws the whole idea of what a homeless person looks like or out yeah, the window. Exactly. And here you had a young couple who are behaving almost in an old fashioned way. He goes to work. She rears the kids. And the only thing missing was a roof, you know. And she said that they had been in the same house for seven years. So it's their home. And that the landlord had decided to sell. And they couldn't find anywhere that they could afford. And because of that, she's waking up in different hotels and has to spend the whole day looking for somewhere just for the night and hasn't doesn't have the time to look for somewhere to live. And I immediately thought, well, there's the story. It's like you can follow that woman for I was going to do it for 24 hours. And then I thought I, I, I dropped what I was writing when I put it aside and immediately went upstairs to my office and wrote a plan, what they call in the business a treatment, like a summary. And I decided I'd immediately make it a little bit more than 24 hours because you would see her getting a hotel room. So we would then know what she was doing for the next day. The same process on the phone, on the phone. And um, I wrote that really, really quickly, really quickly. A couple of days I had it done. And uh, I had had a meeting with a woman called Emma Norton, who works for the film company Element. They made Normal People, the big hit last year. And I emailed her and said, I've just written a treatment about a homeless woman. Do you want to read it? And she got back literally immediately and said, yeah. So the ball started rolling there. But it's a very it was made for very little money. But actually getting the money to make a film about a homeless woman and her children proved quite difficult, you know. But I think they did a brilliant job. Yeah, definitely. It. Yeah, yeah, brilliant acting. And the, the director, Paddy Brannock, it was such a well, it, all of them. It was brilliant to work with them all. And the actors, the kids, you know, some of them had never acted before. And they, they were so good. Somebody I know in London watched it over the weekend. And he said, I can't believe they're acting, you yeah. know. Mm. And because of it, you know, sometimes it's a virtue. You know, when they're, she's picking them up from school and there's people coming out of the school. They're, they're people picking up their kids from school. Yeah. They're not actors pretending <laughs> to be picking up little actors. <laughs> you know, so they're the real deal. Yeah. And in a way... What I liked about that as well is that your notions about, well, are, all, are, are they all white or what? Are we going to have some, you know, black people in there? And actually, the school, the people who go to tender kids to that school, they made that decision because there's a mix of people coming out the, the gates. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, in a way, it would always be great to have a bit more money to a bit more elbow room in the budget so you can do more things. But I think in many ways, the lack of a budget made it that bit better because everything was tight. Okay. You know, How does the well. budget get decided? 
people who are much better at figures than me go through the thing and said, we need that for we need that amount for that and that amount and that. And they can do, that's what they're trained Not to do. Not just see Roddy Doyle sent an email, give him what he wants to make this film, no? <laughs> no bulk, Get the Caprio and all in, no, clicking the kids. Bulk, <laughs> no? The bulk of film scripts and television stuff I've done was never, has never seen the light of day. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, every, every story and every novel I've ever written has been published, but it's not the same with films at all mm. because of the... The money and uh, you know it's uh, it's hard sometimes. You put a lot of mo- you put a lot of work into something and it never gets made. It's hard not to see it as a failure. You know? Yeah, really, really hard. So, um, but in this case, anyway, it was on. It was off. It was on. It was off. And then they they realised that we we've the money to make it, and it was made. Uh, and it was a great experience. Brilliant. Um, it seems a strange thing to say because it is. You know, it's a, it's not it's not a hoot. It's not no. a funny film. No. Yeah. But to see. Like Sarah Green, who plays Rosie, mm. to see an actor like that just take lines that you've written, you know, and they're in the middle of the script, you know, the, the dialogue runs down the middle of a script, you know, but I never had a sense of what she looked like or anything like that. And then Sarah comes along and she's from Cork. You know, this is acting like she's from Cork, mm. but, but you'd never guess it. And then uh, just to see her become the character is quite an extraordinary experience mm. and you know it was Paddy I wasn't there that day I, I didn't go I don't go on the set much because usually my job is done so I just go out of curiosity or sometimes to say hello to people mm. but there's a lovely scene where they're out she's outside the railings with the kids waiting for the older kids to come out of school and the little young one has the um the toy that keeps getting lost peachy and she ties the ears around the railing and that's not in the script just oh, doesn't actually she yeah. did that yeah. yeah 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 you know yeah and it's lovely yeah yeah and yeah. it says so much it made her it made her and them somehow even realer yeah yeah yeah. More she did raw, that. Like, yeah 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 she but, behaved like a kid yeah yeah but i think like you said like it is yeah it's so relatable and but the thing that people do misunderstand with homelessness and things is when people think of homeless facilities and homelessness, they think of drugs, they think of yeah. all this type of thing. Sleeping bikes. Sleeping bikes, they think of this. And even in the hostels, they think it's just alcohol and drug related when there is people in there. Look, I said before, I met people in homeless facilities who were leaving early in the morning to go to work, yeah. to come back to them homeless facilities. And I met people who were like... Very, very intelligent people yeah. who are going out and doing a hard day's graft and going back and sleeping in a hostel yeah. that night. And I think there's that misconception, but not even just in homeless facilities, in working class areas and working yeah. class that you talk about. There's a misconception about the working class areas that everybody uh, feels entitled and everybody's on the dole and everybody's, oh, yeah. you know, there's this misconception. Yeah, oh, free, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you don't pay rent. It's that yeah, way. No, oh, you got a free gaff, you know, yeah. it's, it's fucking. It would wear you out. And the thing I was, uh, people said to me, you know, and often as a sometimes as a as a compliment to the actor and to the to the the, the whole tone of Rosie that she's so polite. Mm. And then there were one or two one or two just found that unbelievable that a woman of that type in that condition would be saying thanks on the phone to a hotel worker who's saying, no, we don't have a room mm. as if she should shout and bawl. Mm. And I one of the points is that she's, you know, she's, well she's very gracious. She's well reared. Yeah. And, uh, but I think there's a sense that she is so tired that that, if you like, that lovely manner she has, it's going to be nibbled away at, mm. inevitably. Yeah. She's not going to sleep properly. 
She's going to be, you know, waking up terrified every morning because she doesn't know where she is. Stress anxiety. The kids are eating takeaways. And, yeah. You know, it's a treat now and again, but it's going to affect them. The poor young one, the bright, you know, the oldest kid is doing her homework in the car. And you can see why she's trying to break away to get into a house of a friend of hers. Mm. A bit of normality. The jammies on watching. There's a Gilmore girls they're watching. Mm. So, um, yeah, you can see how it's nibbling away. Mm -hmm. But what I've tried to do uh, consistently with my work is to, in a way, if you take the characters from the commitments or whatever, to really be true to where they come from, not apologize for it in any way, not try to make them into something that they're not. But at the same time, my deep, deep, if I have a conviction that, that I've had all my life and that I hope to carry right to the very end is that everybody's intelligent. And everybody has the same value and nobody, because they come from a certain address, is worth more than anybody else. And I think one of the lessons of the pandemic was, you know, the way the difference between private and public health mm -hmm. that disappeared for a while because it had to. And the leave insert disappeared for a while. So the grind schools that people pay for in the notion, in the idea that they own the leave insert that it is the property of private schools on the south side of the river and one or two other places. And then whatever's left can go to the rest that got nibbled away. And so these things that we thought were kind of cut into stone and were, you know, unchangeable aren't. So the opportunity in a way, it's a, it's a bit like the same with the way Dublin is being planned. That the opportunity is there to, for a shift, for a change. And homelessness of all the problems in this country is the one that makes me most ashamed, I think, because it's one of the richest countries in the world. We mm. don't, we're not comfortable with that. But it is actually a very wealthy country. And if the money was distributed differently and fairer, when there, when there wasn't a bean, and, uh, you know, economists could probably come in and explain it, why I'm being naive. But when the country was on its knees in the 30s and 40s and they 50s and 60s, houses. they built the most houses. Yeah. It's an ideological thing. They decided, no, we can't do this. We leave it for the market. Even the likes of Kilbarrick as well. Yeah, yeah. It falls all, into that. You know, yeah. A whole ring of houses around where hundreds of thousands of yeah. people live in Dublin. These houses that have stood the test, you know, Crumlin, houses that yeah. were built, you know, almost a century ago. And nobody's suggesting knocking them down, you know. So um, it's just unfair. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Um, just before we wrap up, the last thing I want to talk about is now this could again be me, me being naive, but has your stuff ever been covered on the curriculum in Ireland? Bits of it, yeah. In primary schools, there are stories in primary school. I had a story called um, New Boy about a little African lad who goes into school, you know, outside of yeah. school term time. So he's plonked into the school and uh, a guy tries to bully him and it all works out. And that ended up on the curriculum. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I don't pay. I think there was talk of the snapper at one point being on, you know, one of the optional books on the leave insert. And mm. I think Paddy Clark as well. I'm not sure what the state of play is or whether it's, I know that Paddy Clark was in, on uh, courses in the UK. Yeah. And I know that the books are in colleges and things like that. I just that. think that like having one of our own on the curriculum with relatable stories and then how it's changed, how uh, writing was at the time you know like yeah. the dialogue and it's how not, it's structured it, and stuff like that you, it's not in any way a dream or an aspiration yeah. and I'd want really um, I think in many ways I'm happier outside the school gates yeah but if I heard you know I know I know that there's a certain leeway now and teachers are allowed to choose the books they want to use and I've, you know I've written books for children and they're used mm. and that's lovely yeah. that's mm. lovely 
I really, really like that. But so I suppose my attitude towards it is a bit contradictory because I can say something for you. I like being outside the school gates. But if I go home and there's an email telling me that we're putting on another one of my children's books into the schools, I'd be saying brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah. It does, I think the substance <laughs> there, because being on the other side of that, someone who set the living third and you have to analyze not just the story, but what the writer was trying to get across. And you're like, like well, the problem there is the leaving cert. Yeah. Measuring human intelligence on the basis of a few hours in June at the very end of your education. Mm. And it means that the 12 years that took you to get to the Leaving Cert are irrelevant. Mm. And all you have to do is learn stuff off by heart and be relatively good at writing very quickly. I know there, it's more complicated than that, but not that much. More complicated. Mm. And it's no way to measure. I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for, for being able to learn and to be able to write at speed and to learn things off by heart. They are skills, but the idea that it's the be all and the end all. Yeah. yeah. And that the way to, my worry would be if one of my books was on the leave insert, that it would be simplified to say three things about this character, you know, discuss, yeah. you know, that type of nonsense. So, um, but, you know, we've got on now for two years with the leave, the leave insert wasn't there at all for one year. And then it's this hybrid version. Yeah. And probably the hybrid version is something, but it's, it, they, I think the leave insert really more than anything else just strangles education. Definitely. I'll just give you an example from my leave insert. So we don't leave insert in 2012. Uh, the book that we covered for English was uh, The Quiet Runner. Are you aware of this one? Uh, it's about Soviet occupied Afghanistan. Yeah. One fella sees his mate getting raped by another fella. And it's just about his life then they meet as adults. And you have to like talk about that. You have to talk about what the writer was thinking. And I'm just thinking like, you didn't, I don't even know the history behind the, the Soviets yeah, occupying well, Afghanistan. I don't have a problem with that because yeah. I think that's a good idea. If you, you combined history and the book itself, and well, all the, and you know, I don't um, think the curriculum does though. That's that yeah, was my that's issue the thing, with it. They're all simplified down at the end. Yeah. You have to write. You know, you've got forty-five minutes to write a question, yeah. and if you don't yeah. do a well enough job, you're not going to college, or you're not going to you're going to fail. Yeah. Whereas and also, the, my problem with the leaving cert is that it assumes that it, it's like greyhound racing, that basically everybody in the traps has to go to college hmm. and it ignores all the other ways of going through your life. Yeah. It's all down to points, isn't it? That stupid way of measuring human system, intelligence. Yeah. But I just thought like it'd be more relevant if you're like, take the man, for example, uh, Jimmy Rabbit has been made, uh, has been laid off for his job. He goes down to the pub with X amount of money knowing that he'll only get a certain it's amount of rounds in. Question. No, well, yeah, well, he knows, no, the, the sense of pride, can he buy? the sense of pride is there, you know, he knows if he, go, he has seven quid, he'll go down to the pub, he'll only have X amount of rounds before they close and he can go home and his mates won't think that he has no money. Yeah. You know, like there's a sense of relevance there and you're like, I know where you're getting at. Yeah, his well, pride yeah. is there, you know I what I mean? I see what you mean, but I do think you could be too parochial that only, you know, that the only books that you can read are books that set in Dublin. Well, no, in I, the think present it, day. I think that would apply to a lot of Irish way of yeah. thinking, you know, the pride is ever. I just think we need more well, variety. Personally, yeah, yeah, but I think the, t the key is variety. Mm. Because I think if you decide, well, we won't have any of the foreign stuff. I mean, I read The Kite Runner. I thought it was really, really great. And uh, I do read a lot of foreign work and work that's translated yeah. into English. I'm reading a lot of Japanese books for some reason at the moment. And I really love them because yeah. they're well translated into English. And I'd hate to think that we'd simplify the education system so that only contemporary living writers from Ireland would be on yeah. the curriculum. Yeah. We did. We tried that when the state was founded by keeping out all foreign music and foreign influences and foreign games. 
depriving ourselves of an awful lot, mm. really, you know. Maybe it, didn't just have, it didn't work anyway. I probably just have repressed memories of it. Do you know what I mean? When yeah, I see the guy going out, fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely did, yeah. Uh, how have we gone this far without mentioning the Roy Keane thing? How have we actually gone this far? <laughs> did you live with Roy Keane? Beg your pardon? Did you have to live with Roy Keane? No, did no. You stay oh, you're talking about the practicalities of how we did it. Yeah. Um, quite sorry, simple. Sorry, Roddy. Uh, we should explain this. You ghost wrote. No, I I prefer to say co-wrote. Co, what is it down as a ghost writer? As you, sorry, that I you don't think I'm described as the ghost writer uh, on the book. His biography, in, second biography. His yeah, the second half it's called. So it's about his life in the last few years before he finished football, and then his life to that date, 2014, I think, if I'm not mistaken. In management and then punditry and that yeah. sort of thing. So the practicality of it was, because Roy lives in Manchester and I live here in Dublin, obviously, is that once a week I'd get the first flight out to Manchester and Roy would book a small hotel room and we a neutral space, we decided, so we wouldn't have the distractions of home life and things like that. we get straight down to work four hours, you know, uh, at first, I'd ask him questions and we build on those questions and then I would write out something and send it to him beforehand. And the next time we'd meet, we'd go through what mm. I'd read and I'd point out stuff I think needed more attention and he'd read over what he what I'd, I'd done and said, I'm not, I don't think I, I want to say that, I want to say it differently. Yeah. So when, you know, ghostwriting in my imagination is that somebody gets bare facts of somebody and then writes out the story. Whereas with us, it was very much a partnership. So the second week, uh, he came to Dublin. He'd get a flight to Dublin. He By then, he he was also Martin O'Neill's assistant, you know, in yeah. the hard, hard mm-hmm. job. So sometimes he'd be over in Dublin anyway, and we grabbed the opportunity. And there's a hotel right beside the airport, and I'd book a co- little conference room there. I think it was about 30 quid. And we'd stay there for the four hours and move on, and then either he'd go home or whatever. And so we did that back and forth, back and forth for about, I think it was about six months. And uh, it worked out brilliantly, really, really brilliantly. It was such a, I can't imagine it being any better. He was just a great guy to work with, you know. So if somebody went, I don't like quibbling too much, when, but somebody says you ghost wrote. It, to me, it's not false modesty. It's unfair because to me, it was an experience that we both went through. Yeah. And that it wasn't him handing over the raw materials of his life and telling me to get on with it. That it was very much back and forth. And I learned so much from him because uh, as a football lover, yeah, learned so much about the reality of, you know, the way journalists, you hear them on the radio all the time talking about he lost a dressing room. Yeah. And I'm wondering sometimes, how does he know? Your man's never been in a dressing room yeah. since he was seven, yeah. you know, so actually to learn so much about it and things about the reality of the working day. And then when Roy started talking about the physical pain that made him end his career up at Celtic, and he, he described it in, in only a way that he could. I remember him talking about my hip was screaming at me. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. You know, and that's not ghostwriting. That's mm. he said, said that. that yeah. I put that down on the page and he made more of that. And he described brilliant to witness it happening, but then brilliant to put it on paper and realize it works. It's really good. So it was very much a partnership, but that the practicality of it was I went there, he came here, mm. I went there, he came. And here. how did you get the call for that? Because you would have been more fictional. 
Yeah, I got a very short email from somebody I didn't know from a, a, a company. Would you be interested in writing a book with Roy Keane? How that does that it. come about? Hmm? Like that's just Roy's decision. I have a feeling that uh, when the I have a feeling that when the idea was put to Roy, I was one of the names that was suggested, and he said, "Yeah, I'd be interested." Because Dunphy done the forcing, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, and he obviously got the sack then because he was dirt. Well, <laughs> no comment. I'm, I'm not saying <laughs> it. Variety, isn't it? It's yeah. variety change yeah. her up. Different conditions, different. Yeah. You know. I think it's just a strange one because you would have been more fictional. They made and a sub at half time. Well, that's, that's what, what it's made it. That's half. what made it. When, when I got the, <laughs> the timing was good as well because I was I I just finished one piece of work and I hadn't thought up another one. Right. So ping this email arrives and the timing was good and it was intriguing because I'd never done anything like that before. Yeah. So it was an adventure. Yeah. I only ever and that goes this goes right back to the very beginning. I've only ever done things that I really want to do. Because if the energy isn't there, it's not going to happen. It's yeah, going to be dreadful. Well, so okay. I really thought, well, this is really uh, a step into the unknown. And we met uh, before we decided to do it. And I think by the time we'd finished, we'd kind of convinced each other that this is something we could have a go at. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I thought my, what I really wanted to do was to capture the way he spoke and communicated on paper so that you wouldn't get a sense that this was me. Yeah. writing on behalf of him that it was him and that's to me that was the challenge that's what I wanted to do and it worked out it was uh, I don't know that's seven years ago and I still feel I always just a mere mention of the book or the name I just feel this glow joy yeah brilliant yeah. Right, joy you got the word there yeah, yeah. last question I have right I'm probably going to sting you here greatest player to ever pull on an Irish jersey The answer, uh, I should say Roy, but I would say Paul McGrath. I think you said this to me before as well. I said Roy Keane and I think you said no. You said Paul McGrath, did you know? No, no, I would, I would say Roy Keane. I'd say Roy Keane as a player though, like as a United player, not for what he did. Do you get no, me? As, uh, Overall, you're talking. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's irrelevant. I mean, uh, to me, you're, 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 the question you asked was uh, the greatest player. Yeah. You didn't say... What are you, who what had are the best oil in Korea now I said yeah. the greatest player yeah, yeah. the greatest player yeah. uh, it'd be hard to two go against Roy two incredible yeah. players and I mean it's it's part of the fun of this type of conversation but you know I just to my mind I I can I can visualise them both you know amazing and being in the old Lansdowne and watching them and I think there were times when Paul McGrath was like four people at the back. And then when he played in midfield, he always seemed to be, he was a solid wall mm. between the opposition and the goal. Mm. And he just, and then he scored the odd goal. Mm. <laughs> he was just, uh, extra, it was a joy to watch him, you know, and his, his sense of um, where he should be. And then it was Roy back and forth, back and forth, yeah. you know, amazing, breaking up things. But they were both... Um, both quite extraordinary, I mean. I but genuinely think if Roy Kane was English, now I know he's played for Ireland and he would have to have a career for England, but if he was English, the media would put him up there with Gascoigne. Of course they would. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think they, they literally, it's a discredit. They, they, they don't give him as much credit as he deserves. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But I think about that, ask me the best Ireland player in an Ireland jersey. That's only. different. It'd be different hard person, to go yeah. against like the likes of Robbie Kane yeah, and that, you know yeah. what I mean? Just the goals, goals, goals. Yeah, that's I, different. I mean, it seems, you know, one where you're having a harmless game, but you'd hate to think there's somebody listening feeling a little bit hurt because they're not included. Yeah. Mm. And you said Robbie Keane. And there was a lot of 
sneering at Robbie Keane when he was actually pinging the goals in, mm -hmm. you know, because oh, he, only, he doesn't score against the good teams. Mm. Well, actually, very few people score against the good teams. That's why they're good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but he scored a hell of, you know, we'd love him now, wouldn't we? Yeah. You know, he was brilliant. Mm. You know, there's some really, going right back, John Giles. I mean, I feel now guilty not mentioning John Giles. Mm. He was, you know, incredible. Absolutely incredible. So, Long before that time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Look, listen, yeah, that's a wrap, isn't it? Can I go home? Now? Yeah, <laughs> we no. let you go, Roddy. Roddy, thanks for coming in. We really pleasure. do appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Very much. I really enjoyed really it. Uh, I yeah. think when people look at our podcast and what it is, I think you explained it very good to me earlier. I said, How can us two lads from a working class area from the inner city in Dublin have a podcast and not have Roddy Doyle on it yeah. with the opportunity to have Roddy Doyle? Uh, so that's what, yeah. <laughs> so that's lovely. It worked all. So throw us a few lovely. quid when you have it there. <laughs> plug. Um, right, we'll wrap her up. Yeah, yeah right, take us out, Johnny. Boom. I'm starving. <laughs> Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. What you waiting for? What you backing in? Just a little The hip knocker.